Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. So a massive thank you to our patrons who have been submitting a caught my eye to a number of questions that have been sent to us over the last couple of weeks. So a big thank you to our patrons. Of course, you can support us on uh, Patreon, which is P-A-T-E, sorry, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And you are a patron if you support us on Patreon. I never quite understand how that works. But uh, thank you to our patrons who have uh, committed a whole bunch of questions. We haven't managed to get to all of them, and we're going to keep an eye on um, the next couple of weeks and hopefully get to many of the questions that you've sent. We've uh, picked out a couple of the questions that have come through, and we'll focus on those a bit today. Um, so lots to get through, and uh, Ross has been back from traveling in the States and from being in the UK and back in South Africa now. Ross, so you're in... Las Vegas. Yeah, it's like the it's like an adult playground, isn't it? I think you described it as. Uh, I don't know <laughs> if I described it as that. People do. People do. I've been there five times now, and I'm you get over it quickly. Vegas <laughs> is a for those planning a trip. Vegas is a three night city. Go for three is nights that as long as you. But you took a lot of Instagram pictures of the fountains. I love the fountains. <laughs> um, Vegas is three nights. Go watch two or three Cirque du Soleil shows. Wander around the strip, stare at the lights, be awestruck by the size and the scale of it and how just ridiculous it is, and then get out of there and go and see the Grand Canyon and get 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 a <laughs> dose of cleansing nature or something. It's it's quite it's quite oppressive. And it's, it was it's, hot. It, man. I can wow. imagine it's noisy and and heat yeah. and yeah. yeah it's, and it's it's just it's a frustrating, inconvenient place if you're not there to gamble and yeah. go nuts. But I was there for a conference, so we we couldn't do that. So it was a conference <laughs> that you went to? So there's a group that's formed called ICONS, which mm. is Independent Council on Women's Sports, um, which is a US-based body, which was formed by two women, Kim Jones and Marcy Smith. And they are connected to the college scene in the US. Both were good college athletes themselves. They've now got daughters who are in colleges. And they formed the group out of concern for women's sport, basically. Yeah. You know, in the US, there's this thing called Title IX, which is legislation that in theory, I wouldn't say protects, but um, tries to prioritize and support women's sport. It has implications for funding and sexual dis- discrimination on the basis of sex. And there are moves afoot from the current administration to change certain things within Title IX that effectively conflate sex and gender, the consequence of which would be, for instance, that trans women would be entitled to compete in women's sport. Now, anyone listening to this knows that that's been an issue for a while and I've been involved in it through world rugby and now here. Um, and so my, my opinion, and uh, we'll get into this, I guess, is that women's sports exist for a reason. And the reason is to exclude male advantage. So mm. it's very much an issue of biological sex. So when you start talking about the, the changing of sex to gender, I think it defeats the whole point. And so they were there. There was a 
simultaneously there was a big gathering of strength and conditioning and athletic directors from all the colleges in Vegas. And that's why I think they put their conference on in conjunction with that. So I mm. presented at that and was involved in a couple of panels, discussions. I mean, if you had to, I think for us in South Africa, we don't necessarily see the gender debate, mm -mm. sort of debates in newspapers and media. I mean, is it, it sounds to me like in the States, it's a it's a big story. It's big, yeah. And it's very politicized, like you can imagine, right? It's, um, yeah, it's become a, it's become a left wing versus right wing thing. And then people unfairly, and I mean, that even happened in, in, in the build-up to this conference on social media, you know. Mm. Um, <laughs> it doesn't help. So, for instance, then, then in the lead-up to going, many listeners, in fact, most would know that the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade, right? So now there's this abortion thing, which is another erosion of women's rights in the U.S. Yeah. And all of a sudden, everything's getting like flung to the extremes of left-wing versus right-wing. And now if you stand for one thing, it means you must stand for all the others. Mm. And so now we're in a position where if you, if you stand and say that I believe in the protection of female spaces and one of those spaces should be sport, then you'll be accused of, uh, of advocating against abortion. <laughs> you're yeah. like, well, how do we go from one thing to the next? Well, no, because that's who you're siding with. Well, hang on a moment here. Like, just because I say one thing doesn't mean I agree with everything that people with that broad political affiliation mean. So the, anyway, point is... It's very messy in the US and it's a big deal. It's a big, big, big st story in sport and it spills over as well. I mean, it's not just in sport that the transgender issue is complicated. I'm I mean, is, to... it, is, it, is it because of the Leah Thomas issue around swimming? I mean, is it, well, was, it, was it sort of accelerated by that? I mean, or, or is, is she the kind of story that everything's built on now? Or is it this general idea that women's sport is under threat from... Oh, and when you talk about a threat, it's obviously a minority threat, but it's mm, still a threat. Mm, yeah, I think <coughs> that had it not been for Leah Thomas, the situation we're in today would have come about two years from now. Mm. Had it not been for Laurel Hubbard, it would have come about five years from now. Had She's it not been for Emily, weightlifter. right, yeah. who, who was the first mm. openly trans woman in the Olympic Games mm. last year in Tokyo. Mm. Had it not been for Emily Bridges in the UK, I don't think, and we'll get to this, British triathlon would have decided what they're deciding. So... It's, it's, it's one of those things, and I've realized people really suck at understanding conceptual explanations. Yeah. They need to be hit between the eyes with a physical manifestation of concept before they really get it. <laughs> because because it's it, well, there's, emo there's emotion involved in it. It's not just, it's not just black and white. Yeah, that's, that's part of it. And they can't, they can't see concepts, you know? Mm. Like World Rugby, we were discussing this in 2018, and by 2019 realized based on a new evidence that was coming out, and I'd been contacted by some researchers, that we needed to think about our policy. Mm. Castasomania, not trans, by the way, that's DSD. We yep. can park that one because we're coming to another one of those in a moment. Yep. Uh, made a lot of people here, for instance, aware of that particular problem. But around the world, no one knew it because it wasn't their problem. You know, yeah. So she, again, she was the personification, the literal manifestation of the conceptual issue. Now you had Leah Thomas come out in the U.S. as the same thing. But the, what I'm getting at was that you could have predicted the emergence of Hubbard, Thomas, Bridges, and others. Because the moment you look at the literature, you discover three things. Number one, male advantage is real and it's big. We've, yeah. we've discussed that on this podcast. Like thousands of boys and old men are better than the best women adults in yeah. the, at sport. I mean, it's a male advantage due to testosterone is enormous. It's what necessitates a woman's category. 
switching off or, or taking away the testosterone that drives that advantage doesn't take away the advantage. That's point number we two. We have talked about this before, but why? Because once testosterone has done its work during development on the skeleton, on the muscle, on the muscle mass, the lean mass, the muscles, force generating capabilities, the tendons, the heart, the lungs, it doesn't go away simply because you take the testosterone away at the age of 25 when it's yeah. been there for 13 years up to that point. So in simple so, terms, transgender athletes have a physical, a level of physical strength that they would not have had right. if they weren't... If they were female from birth. Yeah, so the biological attributes that are created by those androgens in trans women, because yeah. remember that's biological male, those are only removed to a small degree. Like some are, some are removed entirely, hemoglobin, for instance, within six to eight weeks, comes right down to female levels. Some are removed not at all. You never change the shape of the skeleton. You're never t taking a six foot eight person and making them six foot one or five yeah. foot six yeah. or whatever the equivalent percentile is in women's sports. So that person will carry advantages if height is beneficial. And then some change only a small degree. And the end result is retention of advantage. And if you retain advantage, the prediction you make is that if you were ranked X in, in men's sport, you will improve that ranking to Y in women's sport. That makes sense yeah. because you're going to, you know, there's if put another way, if the normal difference in swimming, say, is 10% between the best men and the best women, and you suppress testosterone and you slow down by 3 to 4%, you are getting better in women's sport than you were in men's. Yeah. And that's exactly what you'd predict. Mm. And that's exactly what Leah Thomas did. Mm. So went from ranked 500-odd to first mm. in one event. So went from 61st to second, I think it was, or whatever, in the NCAA champs. I don't have the mm. stats at the top of my head now. But... The point is that Thomas was predictable yeah. because, you, you, you know, it's, this is science. You just you, you gather the data, you put together a model, and the model makes a prediction, which is in effect a hypothesis. Mm. <laughs> the hypothesis is that in time, an athlete, a male athlete, will transition who was good enough as a male. They will turn that retained advantage into dominance of women's sport. And slowly that's begun to happen. You know, four, three, four years ago, there wasn't one. Yeah. Now there's... A handful and it'll happen more and more and more unless people say enough or no thank you to paraphrase one weightlifter i guess the one um argument for transgender athletes is a lot of them and i've seen this argument on social media before is that there are there are not suddenly hundreds of male athletes who are now going to become transgender that so they can dominate women's sport mm. um so the threat is not suddenly women's sports going to be overtaken by transgender athletes so why worry about a few isolated well, cases? Well, first of all, if the IOC's policy is not tightened up, they're inviting that situation because the IOC doesn't even require testosterone suppression anymore. Mm. Now, it's up to the individual sports as to whether the or Olymp not they... International Olympic Committee, right. yeah. yeah. So it used to be that they required surgery, you know, surgical removal of the testes. For This is for trans women. Mm. Then they did away with the need for surgery, but they still required the suppression of testosterone. Mm because they thought they could fix the problem at source. There are now 13 studies that show that that doesn't work. Uh, they've now somehow taken that and <laughs> moved completely away from testosterone and are basically saying there's no need to measure it and there should be no presumption of advantage. So I actually think that their new policy does invite countries to manipulate that system and just declare as women, men as women. I mean, that's what it does. Yeah. But, but you're right. In terms of real, like in terms of gender dysphoria, which does exist, 
mm. males who genuinely identify as women. The numbers are for now a little bit like lower, but an increasing prevalence, by the way. The, the numbers are going up all the time. So mm. when you make policy in sport, you do have to, to some degree, anticipate what, what's going to happen. You don't, you don't close the barn door after the horse is bolted. You, know? you have to actually develop a policy based on what you know. Conceptually, you don't wait for the example to come along before you, yeah. you know, put your finger in the dike, basically. Mm. Now, the... Sorry, so your, your question was, well, so what yeah, if so there's why, a few of them? Bother? Well, the, the, the counter question to that is, well, how many do you accept? Yeah, yeah. Is how, many is, how many is an acceptable number? Because that question you ask is now what's being put forward by a lot of people, mm. which is one sign of where this debate has evolved. Three years ago, the argument was, well, there's no advantage. Most reasonable people, even some scientists who used to advocate for the no advantage, are now saying, yeah, you know what, there is an advantage, but... A, I think it's small, and B, not many people have it. So actually, mm. we can handle this. Competition is still meaningful. Mm. My counterpoint is, well, no, it's not, because one, one person actually doesn't affect one person, affect many. Yeah. So every swimmer who had to swim against Leah Thomas was affected, one ranking place, and that has knock-on implications. Mm. And conceptually, you don't manage it by number. Like, would you allow one doper? Yeah. Well, no, you wouldn't. Good, you, good, if you're not allowed to dope, yeah. you're not allowed to dope. Yeah. Because um, one doper affects somebody further down and the same thing applies. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, one person, and uh, you see people, even even supposedly clever people sometimes struggle with analogies, but if one person cheats, it destroys the fabric of fair competition. Yeah. Now, that's not to say that a trans woman is deliberately cheating, but uh, they are gaining an advantage. And so I, I don't. I would reject the argument of scarcity as a, as a justification to allow it. You know, you can't say. And I, th I think they, I think that they argue it on purpose because I think they know that some people will say, yeah, actually, you know what? There's so few. We can we can let it go for now, and then three or four years from now, there won't be so few, and then it's that much more difficult to unwind what you should have done in the first place. Yeah. And so okay, no, let's yeah. actually just leave it. So it's ethical. It's principle. It's not just. The fact that there yeah, are you can't, isolated cases of this. It's not by scale, yeah. you know. And yeah, yeah. people keep saying, well, where are all these athletes? Two years ago, when World Rugby published the guidelines, that was in October 2020, people said, well, this is a, you're solving a problem that doesn't exist. Where are these athletes? Mm. Now we have, in the US alone, there's an article came out earlier this year, 10 titles at NCAA level that have been won by trans women. Mm. Okay, I'll show you these that's, athletes. That's a significant number. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, okay, yeah. I'll show you these athletes. No, 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 stop pointing at individuals. Mm -hmm. So, well, okay, how do you want this? So the, the debate is, I think, in bad faith. In the beginning, it was show me the athletes. Now you show them the athletes. They say, don't show me the athletes. You're not allowed to talk about individuals. <laughs> so, yeah. So it's simultaneously a problem that doesn't exist, but when it does exist, you can't solve it. And I guess in some sports, it's the likelihood of there being a more higher prevalence of transgender athletes is where the threat comes. So in some sports like tennis, for instance, less likely, but in a sport like rugby, you're likely to see trans uh, more of an effect. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see actually where the prevalence is the highest. Mm. Um, remember, just that, the, there's, guess, a, but it's there's just... a base there's a base prevalence. There's a, there's a, there's a population of trans women mm. who feed into the sports pool, right? So the first the first criteria is where the base prevalence is going to be the highest. 
And there's no doubt that it's in the developed Western world. Mm. It's in the first world. Mm. You're not getting these cases. And that's for many reasons, social, cultural, the stigma we'll attached say, yeah. potentially, going access to medical of, care. Yeah. Actual so, process of going through transgender process is something so, that requires right. first world technology. Exactly. Yeah. So the first place you'd look is the sports that are dominated by those countries. Yeah. That's where you're going to see the, the base prevalence. And then where upper body strength, this is where the physiology then takes over, because the biggest difference between male and female is in the upper body, and it's in the strength events. So where upper body strength, power, and muscle mass are important, mm. those are the events where the retention of advantage will gain you the most ranking points. Yeah. So in endurance running, for instance, or potentially swimming, where the male-female gap is 10%, Suppression of testosterone, let's say, for argument's sake, takes away three to five. Mm. It leaves five behind. Only a person who was within 5% of the best woman would now win against women. Makes sense, right? Yeah. Whereas in weightlifting, where the male-female difference is 30% and you only take 5% away, you could be within 25%. This mm. is the, the, the pool that you might capture is that much larger. Mm. So the mm. combination of the physiology plus the population prevalence mm will drive where this becomes more of an issue. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there have been, in recent weeks, we've seen FINA, um, obviously the body that controls world swimming, the cycling, rugby league, triathlon mm. UK, all of them coming with policies. Are they all saying the same thing? S no, slightly different things, but same, like vaguely facing the same direction. Which is which, which not is to allow transgender athletes into the sport. With the exception of the cycling in this instance that you've listed those sports there, yes. So we spoke about world rugby. The world rugby policy was the trans women are excluded from women's competition if they've gone through male puberty. In other words, if they're androgenized. Right. The FINA policy is very much the same. It says that in order to participate in women's sports, you have to basically show that you have not experienced any part of male puberty. And right. in their document, they specifically list um, beyond Tanner stage two, which is a developmental stage during our development, which is in theory marks the start of male physical development. So oh, right. okay. if you've reached Tanner stage two, swimming won't allow you to swim in women's events. Right. No matter if you suppress your testosterone or not, that's what they're basically saying. That was a significant decision. It was actually broadcast live on YouTube they showed exactly what the discussions were. They showed the results of the vote that they had. They had their nations vote live. Mm -hmm. And they also showed the results of surveys that they'd done before. And I, I think it was important. I wanted to read you that. They, they asked the athletes, should eligibility for the women's events of FINA competitions be based solely on the birth sex? And 84% say yes. Right. So that's more than four-fifths of their swimmers are arguing for the protection of women's sport on the basis of sex, biological sex at birth. When we surveyed players, um, World Rugby, we had about 67% say yes, mm -hmm. and another 20% said, if you show me that the advantage is retained, then yes. So now, now that we know the advantage is retained, we're in the 80s. In the 80s, yeah. And so when you actually ask women, the women in the sport, the stakeholders in the sport, what they think, and not just women, by the way, this was coaches, men and women, they are pretty overwhelmingly of the opinion, or that at least to say they recognize that sex matters. Yeah. And so in the end, 71% of the 152 nations who form FINA voted in favor of that proposed policy. And that was, that was significant because mm. World Rugby's policy was predicated on safety first, fairness second, 
inclusion third, FINA put fairness at the top. Yeah. Uh, they don't have a safety issue. Maybe water polo, you could argue, but mm. that was a significant. Um, and when you say policy, as as can you say policy as opposed to guideline? Because I know in rugby, yeah, that's, it's a guideline. Yeah. It's not necessarily a rule. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. And and so FINA's applies to FINA's events. Okay, so it's, so, it's a rule. Yeah, yeah. exactly. World it's rugby, not you can follow it if you like. Exactly. Yeah. World rugby was the latter because we, we had to line. respect that different countries who run their own rugby events would potentially have constitutions and legislative environments that meant they couldn't enact or enforce the guideline. Right. Okay. Uh, or, or enforce a policy. So yeah. that was the situation there. Now, so, so FINA, FINA basically then have recognized male advantage, retained male advantage, and the need to protect women's sport. I thought that was a great decision. Yeah. I'm very happy with that. There's some controversy because the moment you say, and World Rugby had the same, the moment you say that you will allow biological males into women's sport if they haven't undergone male puberty a how do you prove it you've got a 26 year old applicant can you get the records going back 14 15 years and secondly people argue that it creates an incentive to suppress puberty younger and younger and younger you know because i mean most of those athletes would have to make that decision when they were early early teens and maybe even earlier which is and that's that's theoretically not not really possible, practically also very difficult. Well, that's what happens in many places around the world. Like in, but, but there's been quite separate from sport, there's been pushback on that. Sweden, for instance, has said, we will not block puberty and we will not allow people younger, I think, than 16 to make that decision. In England, there was a court case, Kira Bell, mm. arguing the same thing. Is how, how did you allow me as a child to make the decision about what sex right. <laughs> or what gender I wanted to be? So that's, that's going on quite separate from sport. But then when sport publishes this policy, a lot of people started saying, hang on a moment, now sport is going to drive the age of transition younger and younger. I, I think that's too much to put on sports, A, and I don't, I, I genuinely don't think, maybe I'm naive still, I can't see an 11-year-old saying, I better reassign now so that I can swim when I'm 21. I mean, I just can't see it. Yeah. The so, cases of that actually happening are probably very limited, but at least it's at least there is now guidelines as to mm. essentially what they're saying. If you're a transgender athlete, unless you are one of the very few that transitioned early on in your life, yeah. you're probably unlikely to be able to compete. Yes, that's exactly that's what, what it, it is. And, and, and the rationale is male advantage is acquired through male development, and therefore that's what we're regulating. It's not... It's not a trance policy, it's a male advantage policy, which is the same approach World Rugby took. UK triathlon is different. Cycling. Yeah, tell us why cycling's different. So cycling's different because they, you see, cycling's trying to fudge this still. Because cycling's board has got people on it who still reject the notion of fairness, um, unfairness as a result of trans women. They mm. still, you know, they've got, literally, they've got people on that board who are arguing advocacy or who are also ad, in advocacy groups for. Um, trans rights effectively, which which I'm all for, but not at the expense of women's rights in sport. Mm -hmm. um, and so what cycling have done is they've, I think cycling has recognized the problem around retained advantage and male, so retained male advantage even when you suppress testosterone. But they haven't been able to bring themselves to, to make the logical conclusion that actually therefore we shouldn't allow this in women's sport. So what they've done is they've said, right, the previous policy required a testosterone level of five, we're going to say 2.5. So we're going to make it a bit tighter. The previous policy said one year, we're going to say two years. Mm. So 
they'll turn around and say, we've, we've lowered the testosterone and we've made them suppress it for longer. Therefore, we'll take away more of the advantage. But the, the thing is, that those 13 studies I mentioned early on. Yeah, they're ignoring those. They've, they've, those 13 studies don't bring it down to 4.5. No. They bring it down to 1. Yeah. They, they, they go right down. And some of those studies, <coughs> excuse me, some of those studies have looked at it for one, two, three years. Mm. There's no evidence to show that if you keep at it or you suppress it for two years, three years, the advantage continues to go off or, or drop away faster and faster. So mm. they've, they've projected to the world a solution that will create fairness, but actually there's no evidence for it anyway. Yeah. So that was, that was a disappointing, because I know for a fact they surveyed their cyclists and they had 90%. Yeah. Saying protect women's sports so on the basis of sex. So they're not they, listening to their, their to constituents. Their constituents, yeah. Okay. Um, and instead, they've they've basically fudged a you know a, a, a scientific physiological reason for it that isn't borne out by any evidence at all. So that hmm. was weak, in my opinion. That was a weak decision. Yeah. So and in Trouton UK, they, they that was, was the most team. recent one, yeah. yeah. And then sorry, rugby rugby league was the other one rugby that league, um, yes, right, right. that went along. I think within two days of Fina's rugby league came out, and then Triathlon UK uh, was last week, I think. Well, I've lost track of time with travel, um, but they've basically recognised the same thing that world rugby, mm-hmm. Fina have done, uh, even cycling, but cycling couldn't bring themselves to this, and <laughs> theirs is the. Theirs is the most, um, shall we call it, least, theirs is the least compromising situation because, you know, where World Rugby and FINA have allowed for male development to be the reason, they're saying anyone biologically male can't, can't compete in women's yeah. triathlon in the UK. Yeah, they made it black and white. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's, as, it's as clear as it can be. Um, mm-hmm. And so the, the chief executives quoted here in an article, athletes who were born male have an advantage over athletes who were born female. And that advantage is significant in swim, bike, and run. We concluded that physiological advantages are attained after testosterone suppression. End. That's yep. it. And I mean, and that's, that is, as a scientist, that is how it should be. Yep. Now, obviously, there are ethical, social, legal issues. In the UK, they are protected legally because there is a Gender Recognition Act that specifically states that sport is exempt and that you can discriminate on the basis of sex where it is necessary and sport is one such place so they can do this Mm. um a lot of the sports in the uk it's emerged are scared of litigation Mm. because they've been told that if they if they exclude trans women they'll be sued in actual fact that's not true (laughs) i'm I'm surprised there haven't been some court cases around this to be honest because there will be um, there will be i'm sure there will be but Mm. i'm surprised there hasn't been already um Mm. because once you have a court that might decide and set a precedent around this it could change the game completely because yeah. Legally, I don't know where it stands. Ethically, we can talk about it. Scientifically, we can talk about it. But legally, there might be a different conclusion. Right. And you know? when I can only speak from our perspective. When World Rugby sat and discussed this, we had lawyers from both sides present the arguments. And we mm. said, well, you know, they both make cases. And then all likelihood, no matter what we did, we're going to have a litigation. Yeah. So actually, it becomes less <laughs> less of a consideration in which way you go. Mm. If, the, if, if you knew you'd only get litigation on one side then maybe that influences where you, where you go but if 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 UK Triathlon didn't do this there'd be a lawsuit from a woman yeah so because it's it's discrimination on the basis of sex yeah yeah and so you have to basically pick you do what's right not what you're scared of yeah, yeah. is the point point. and right. incidentally triathlon 
surveyed 3,000 members, and 80% favoured a protected female category. Sure, so that's a big So you get the same number. number. Yeah. So mm. you, in rugby, if you add in the undecideds based on evidence, mm. FINA, cycling's 90% and triathlon's 80 mm. Basically, where we are right now, as of today, the 14th of July, mm. the only way a sport doesn't go in favor of protecting women's sport is if they ignored its own constituents. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. That's the bottom line. So if anyone listening to this is involved in sports governance, you can be inclusive, but I guarantee you pretty much now that you're ignoring the voice of women yeah, in your sport. For sure, for sure. And you're discriminating against women in your sport. Which I suppose is quite um, good when you consider how confusing some of this messaging can come from the different sides because, you know, you talk to the average person on the street about the Casta Semeni issue, you talk about mm. the gender issue, the trans issue. There are people that I know who are very pro-trans um, sport, purely from a, an emotional perspective. Mm. They're not looking at the facts. But yeah. it's not easy to necessarily understand the issue as much as you can listen to this podcast all day, but there are still people to be confused by it. Yeah, and the problem is they do get conflated. Like it's mm. because because there are there are trans rights. Like if I go to the bank mm. and I'm going to cash a check, do people even do that? Or if I'm going to <laughs> if I'm going to, uh, to to the coffee shop and I'm going to get my flat white and a and a croissant, like it, I don't care what sex, gender, or the person serving me is. It's it's irrelevant. Mm. And there are so many places in life where it doesn't matter. It's mm. absolutely irrelevant, and we can be entirely. 100% accommodating yeah. but there are some domains where we create colliding rights where there is a right of one group to to in this instance fair and safe sporting competition mm-hmm. and then you can't just sweep aside the rights of that group in favor of a group that claims membership of it yeah when when biological sex is a thing that matters and can't be changed yeah. you know yeah. and, that, and and that's why when when you survey the public if you ask a question like do you back trans rights like 90 Reasonable people, 95%. Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah. But would you support males and female sport? No, 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 no. Okay, okay. Yeah. well, you've actually just contradicted. So, so the nuance is very important here. Mm-hmm. And the problem, and we alluded to this in your earlier question, is it's so polarized now that if you argue in favor of the protection of women's sport, you're transphobic. Yeah. And you get shut down and you get lob- lumped together with extreme right-wing thinking of all now every you must agree with everything they say yeah but actually like now hang on a moment here this is one specific space there are a few spaces where sex matters and sport is the clearest of them yeah and uh i think that the yeah I, i don't know what happens next you know when we when we published our policy we thought other sports might follow in behind us fina is you know, at the Olympic Games, there's three maybe big sports. It's track, swimming, and gymnastics. Yeah. You know, now FINA's gone that way. Sean Engel wrote a piece the day after the FINA policy in which he said that... He of the Guardian. He yep. of the Guardian, yeah. He said that there's a strong likelihood that world athletics would would row in or swim in, as it were, behind FINA at some point in the future. And if, if track and field and swimming go that way, then... The tide has turned properly. <laughs> Yeah. Then it does. It, it feels like finally sports have started to a listen to science, mm. and b and most important of all, listen to their own women, yeah. <laughs> yeah. their own, own stakeholders, and not just women. By the way, when I was in Vegas, I met some coaches who were mm. saying men coaches of men's teams of women's teams who are male, the coaches rather <laughs> that is to say, <laughs> and they they they're saying the same thing. Anyone in sport understands this mm. that sex matters. Like mm. if you've done sport, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's where we are, and I don't know what happens next, but. Sometimes I feel like the, the, the wind direction's definitely changed. Yeah. 
and finally women are being heard, other times I, I wonder. That'll always be the odd voice of protest, I guess, in any, in, yeah. any, in any issue like this. Including the IOC. I mean, it'll be interesting. FIFA has to consider a triathlon. I mean, if track and field goes that way and you've got running and swimming, <laughs> yeah. how does triathlon not? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, again, yeah. you can do it, but I guarantee you, you're ignoring science mm. and your own women's yeah, voices. For sure, for sure. Mm. So let's move on to a question that kind of relates in mm. a, in a, in a, you know, it's it's a it's a loose connection, but it's a nice segue into it. Josh Miller, one of our patrons, has sent us a message saying, "I I sense a Barbara Bunda conversation soon. It would be great to get your knowledge of the tests and how this decision was made. I'm wondering whether they used a biological passport, yeah. or whether it's just based on her result as it relates to the acceptable range of the time of testing." So. For those of you that don't know Barbara Bunda, she is a Zambian soccer player. Mm. She was prevented from participating in the um, Confederation of African Football Women's Competition because of what CAF have not said specifically why. <laughs> and we'll talk a little bit about how people draw the conclusion. But it's one of those issues which sounds like a DSD athlete, as yeah. in Alicaster Semenya, with high testosterone levels, and CAF and soccer have now put the put the bands on these types of players and she's one of them yeah and there are two others also from zambia yeah. um and they're and they're the stars of the team yeah i mean yeah. banda banda competed in tokyo last year and scored, and scored consecutive yeah. hat-tricks and, exactly. and, I, and I, I saw this and i thought wow, wow that's that's interesting first thought obviously is okay we're dealing with a, a dsd difference of sex development yeah where and again, we've done a podcast on this. If you go back in the archives, you'll find actually two on Castor Semenya, I think. D- difference of sex development is where one of a couple of different things can happen, but you are XY chromosomally, so male, genetically male, chromosomally male. You produce testes. You, you know, during during the process of sex differentiation, you've got these gonads, and they either can become ovaries or testes. While you're developing in the, in the, in the body. Yeah, yeah, yeah so the, soon after conception yeah, even. Yeah. Uh, you develop testes. The testes produce high levels of testosterone in the male range, but for one of two or three different reasons, you don't fully use that testosterone to develop external genitalia. Mm. Now, there's a couple of conditions. One's called ARD, one's called AIS. Don't worry too much about that for now. Go back and but it is a DSD. Listen, yeah. listen to the previous podcast if you want the fuller explanation. But what happens then is because you don't develop your primary rep- reproductive system, which is to say your external genitalia, when you are born, you are often identified as a girl as opposed to boy. And then you're raised as a girl and so forth. And then only later on do you, you often start to perceive issues because, for instance, you will never have menstrual function. Um... Now, in the case of sport, maybe they pick up the issue. <laughs> the question is how. Well, it's one of the many questions here. Yeah. But but that's that's basically what you're dealing with in the case of Semenya and a few others that have happened in the in the past. Now, the, these are super controversial because at least in the trance issue, the the athlete in question has chosen a gender identity. In this instance, they've haven't. They've been identified as girls when in actual fact they are biologically male. You know, XY, testes, male testosterone, and they can use that testosterone. you look at them and they are female. Externally at birth, they look female. Now, what happens is at puberty, they, because they can use testosterone, in more than half the case, they reassign. Something I learned when I was involved in the Semenya case. Mm. Really fascinating. Around the world, about 50-odd, I think it was 58%, mm. would, would re-identify and say, actually, 
I've now recognized there's an issue here because at puberty they develop male secondary sex characteristics, the musculature and the elements that are relevant to sport, but also things like deepening voice, facial hair and so forth, right? Mm. So then sport comes along and says, hang on a moment. And those who haven't, <laughs> the sport says, hang on a moment, we don't think you're actually a woman. So that's why this is ethically very difficult. Oh. These are these are much more complex ethically and medically. It's a tragedy behind that story on its own. Right. Yeah. And and, and what the what the Banda situation illustrates is the chaos and the confusion because it's it's subsequently emerged that CAF, which is the body that organizes it's like the FIFA of Africa, yeah. you know, like UEFA for Europe, CAF for Africa. They sent a requirement out to all the participating teams to screen their players before coming to this tournament in Morocco. And Zambia complied and basically flagged up three of their own players, Banda being one of them. Mm. As a consequence, she was withdrawn from the Zambian squad. But now there seems to be some kind of dispute between the Zambian Football Association and CAF because it's not immediately clear what policy CAF are implementing. And when I read this piece, that was the same thought I had. I thought, I didn't know football had a DSD policy. Yeah. <laughs> I know World Athletics does. I've never seen anything to suggest that the IOC adopted it and definitely never seen anything to suggest that FIFA adopted it. So I'm not, but they must have because otherwise they wouldn't request this testing. So I don't, yeah, so this, it's chaotic because you don't even know on what basis they've given asked what we for. know of African football, the suggestion is that there probably isn't a policy, but there is a concern that there are these athletes that are participating yeah. um, in the sport. And I wonder yeah, if so, that happens in women's soccer in the States and in Europe. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. And I, and I would imagine if I was, yeah. if I was speculating, I would suggest, because remember, she participated in Tokyo. Yeah. But that's, so presumably there was no, there was no screening before that. Right. Because these conditions are not that hard to find, yeah. identify. You know, How would the, you screen an athlete? I mean, what, what, what would be the process? A lot of people have asked that Just and it was test. discussed on social media. It's like, is it the testosterone level? And the answer is no, not, not actually. Because in, in normal doping controls, they don't actually measure the testosterone concentration. You need a very specific test to do that. And that's only done when an athlete is being target tested or secondary subsequent testing if there's a first test looks a bit suspicious. So it's not, it's most likely not based on testosterone or the biological passport in answer to Josh's question, right? Yes. Um, but, but, but a if, biological passport is there to, just, to see if there's a change. That would, her biological passport, right. if there was one, and I doubt there was one for her, yes. would, would suggest that she'd been like that for her whole life. Correct. And, and, and you, would, you would know the level because the passport wouldn't work in, in absent or independent of knowing the level. Mm. And, and when we talk about these athletes, these DSD athletes, remember they're XY with testes and male, the biological male. So their testosterone is in the male range. It's like 20, whereas most women are below two. <laughs> it's, not, it's not like, hmm, it's close. It's no, not, it's not. Right? But that's not, what they, that's not what they measure typically. Just a f simple physical examination is enough. For history, um, menstrual, fa menstrual function, in your life. Well, no, never, never had a period. Okay. Let's explore that a little bit more. Um, ultrasound reveals very quickly the presence of internal testes and the absence of a uterus. So they're not especially difficult conditions to identify. Uh, once you've physically done that examination, then you could measure the testosterone and you'll very quickly confirm that it's 25 or whatever the number happens to be. And do you so, think, I mean, we're, we're, we're sort of 
hypothesizing here, but do you think they would have, in all fairness, looked at the entire squad of Zambian and 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 all of those tests? Because I would imagine there is a spectrum here. Yeah. Because Barabanda might be obviously have some male characteristics, but there might be athletes that are, you know, on that side as opposed to the other side yeah. of the spectrum mm. and therefore where is where do you start testing only well, when you see a physical difference <laughs> <laughs> well this is so, so in the closing arguments and, and in the submissions that were made to CAS the Court of Arbitration in the Castor Semenya case this was one of the this was one of the strong arguments that Semenya's lawyers made is that how do you identify a case yeah and the reality is that identifying a case requires either everyone is tested mm. e- equally or Target testing based on what? Subjective appearance. Now you start to actually get into like subjective assessments of what a woman should look like. And then it it invites allegations of racism as well because you don't conform to the Western expectation of what women should look like. So Mm. that is is a major issue with this DSD policy. It's It's a real challenge. The way that it sounds, and, and there was a journalist from the Associated Press contact me at the weekend, it, it sounds as though CAF asked the teams to do it. So therefore, I would imagine they did it on all the athletes. Yeah. But that could be cover for actually having played and been so, so successful in Tokyo. It's not inconceivable that someone has brought to their attention the case of Banda and a couple others. Right. We know that's happened in track and field. Yes. We know that's how Casta Semenya was flagged up. We know that's how, before her, other athletes were flagged up. Is yeah. An athlete will make an allegation, and it's effectively finger-pointing. Now, mm. the authorities are always quite quick to say, officially, we will not uh, allow for finger-pointing, but how do you stop that? Mm. It's, you know, you can't. So if, if someone brings to the attention of CAF or FIFA, whoever it is, that there's players in that team that we believe are biologically male, and they start investigating it and sure enough it's true now <laughs> so yeah it, you yeah. can see why it's such a if you're that one athlete you might say well okay I want, now if you're testing me i hope you're testing everybody here yeah because and there might be some people that are less on that my side of the spectrum correct. but still on the and spectrum i yeah. promise you and listeners like we oh. we saw lists of names at cas of mm. athletes who've had these conditions some you would not maybe be surprised at mm. but some of them your jaw will drop yeah. You would not know it. Physically, you wouldn't. Because of the degree yeah. to which they can't use those androgens. You mm. know, that's the whole problem, right? Mm. Is they've got androgen insensitivity or the mm. ARD is a little easier. Um, but there's, you know, there's an, A, there's, to begin with, there's an overlap in these secondary sex characteristics in the mm. first place. And B, when you start taking away the ability to use testosterone, you'd be very surprised at some of the names on that list. So, so what's the solution? The solution is that they should actually test everyone. Now, they used to do that, remember, in the 1950s, (laughs) somewhat crudely and barbarically, it was the nude parades. Mm. That's literally what happened. You'd have to parade Mm. naked in front of a panel. We talked about in the podcast And they'd certify you as a woman. Now, scientific advancement (laughs) allowed us, luckily, to move away from that. And then they started doing these swabs in the cheek, Mm. where you basically looked for whether there was a second X chromosome or not. Because if you were XX, you passed. If you were XY, you failed. (laughs) So if you had what was called a bar body, you were rubber stamped, yes. <laughs> or if you didn't, you were flagged up as, as male. Yeah. Right? Now, that, that test is very, very accurate. Mm. It's, as, a, as, a, as a screening tool, it is almost perfect mm. because 99.9% of females will be XX and 99.9% of males will be, or men, women, will be XY, right? Mm. 
Mm-hmm. So as an initial screen, emphasis and bold underlined initial, doing that kind of test, and you could do even more sophisticated ones now where you look for the specific male gene on the Y chromosome. It's called the SRY gene. You could do that test on all athletes wishing to participate in women's sport. It would be relatively cheap and easy, and it sidesteps this issue of potential target testing individuals based on their appearance or the, the tone of their voice <laughs> or the presence of facial hair or whatever else you want to talk about. Right? Yeah. Now, some people reject that. They say it's, it's ethically mm. – to me, I'd say this is less ethical than that would be. And there might be a lot of athletes who actually don't even know. I mean, right. what's to say Barbara Bunda never considered that she was mm. a <laughs> – I mean, you know, yeah. the, the, about so well, she didn't have a menstrual cycle, therefore she must have known, but that doesn't necessarily mm. mean anything. Like she could have just blamed that on it, being high, efficient, very good at sport. Yeah, and, and yeah. training hard training and being hard, slightly yeah. malnourished. Yeah. And that's yeah. what happens, right? So that is what happened. Yeah. Maria Patino was a Spanish hurdler in the 80s who made that exact claim, said, I'd never mm. – I'd never um, – never known there was an issue until sport pointed it out to me and i thought it was reasonable because many of my peers were the same as me you know i wasn't i didn't feel any different mm. with respect to menstrual function so so yeah they could do that and you know there were some surveys of women athletes done in the 96 olympics which was the last occasion on which this compulsory screening was done and again like in excess of 80 percent of women we're happy doing that test. I mean, you know, we all live in a time of COVID and we know what it's like to have a swab stuck up our noses. Mm. The test to do this would be less invasive than that. Yeah. And you could do it. And once you've passed it, you've passed it. You're good to go. Um, and it would sidestep a lot of the issues. Because the, the problem around Bandanao is no one knows what the heck happened. Mm. How did she play Tokyo? Not now. You yeah. know, they even re- they've even reported that she was required to lower her testosterone levels um, but didn't meet the eligibility requirements. I'm like, well, what policy are they using? Because yes. the, the the World Athletics policy, if you lower your testosterone, you would be eligible. So there'd be no issue. Yeah. Now, so I, I've got no idea what's going on behind the scenes here with this particular case. Yeah. But but I would I will say that it sounds a lot I, like African football in a well, nutshell, doesn't it? Yeah, it's just it's just the chaos, you know. But it's not yeah. it's not unique. Like World Athletics, yeah, there true, are true. you know in World Athletic champs now, Christine and Boma and and uh, Maslingi from Namibia. I don't know if Boma got injured badly earlier this year, muscle injury. I don't know if she's back. I would imagine she'll try for World Champs, but mm. it's similar. Like how did how did World Athletics identify in Boma and Maslingi? I wonder, was it? Was it random testing? No. <laughs> it was definitely targeted. No, because they didn't test every single day. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, somebody would have said, hey, I want you to test that person. Right. So that's the problem. Like, and So whilst, whilst I fully support, because again, these individuals are biological male and they can use testosterone, so they have male advantage, there's no doubt. They really need to clean up the way they deliver on this policy. I mean, we don't even know what CAF's policy is. It's, it's chaos. Yeah. Okay, well, if you're listening to this podcast and you have any insight into uh, particularly the policy of uh, of CAF, which is the Confederation of African Football, and uh, know what they're doing there, let us know because mm. uh, we're, we're certainly in the, I will, in the, I will in say the talk about that a bit. One other thing, just, you know, all the media reporting talks about like women with high testosterone levels, and I understand why they do that. But the accurate, the biologically accurate thing here, it's, it's not, you're not dealing anymore. This was a really important shift in the world athletics argument. You're not dealing with women with high testosterone levels. You're dealing with biological male testosterone levels. Yes. That's a key difference. The, the 2016 policy that Duty Chan challenged at CAS successfully was called hyperandrogenism in women. By 2019 for Semenya, 
It was the DSD policy, which is to say, CAS is no, uh, World Athletics is not interested in XX, chromosomal woman, with ovaries and high testosterone. They're not interested in that condition. Mm. There's no issue at all having elevated testosterone as a woman because it never gets that high. The issue is XY, testes, biological male with male testosterone levels in yeah. women's sports. And the media never get that right. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Right, so let's move on to a different subject. And one, this is from Jason, one of our, one of our patrons. And uh, this is, um, he writes quite a long email around the concept of zones in heart rate monitoring. And he talks specifically about, when he looks at Garmin and polar literature, how there's the zones of five and six zones. And when you automatically attach to those zones, whether it's Garmin, Polar, Strava, it kind of sets it up for yourself. But he feels like it's very arbitrary for him. And he says he's a professional bioinformatics scientist and a human geneticist. So, Jason, I hope we can reply to you in a similar sort of academic vein. But he says, for him, when he hits the higher zones, he tends to hit the higher zones with relative ease, and he can run and ride at a conversational pace while his heart rate hovers in a range that the watch says should be reserved for high-intensity days. Mm. But I think what he's actually, to kind of wrap up what he's saying in his question is, how do we decide... And how do we know what those zones are? Because we talk about zones one, two, three sometimes, zones one, two, three, four, five in some platforms. Yeah. And then some platforms have, I think on Strava, there's seven zones. So is there an easy way to do this? And if there isn't, how do you do this? Yeah, so this is, so Jason actually, a special kudos to Jason because it was an email from him about five or six weeks ago, I think. Again, I, I've, I've totally lost track of time in my old age. Um, <laughs> that triggered this whole caught my concept because Jason basically reminded me that we need to have this community dialogue more. So we owe owe this uh, caught my segment in every part we do to Jason. So thanks very much for that. So I hope I can do justice to this one. Heart rate is, like I remember when I I got my first heart rate monitor when I was 15, I remember, because I'd I'd already decided I was going to do sports science and I was also trying to be a decent runner. Mm. Only one of those two things came true. <laughs> um, but I got, so I convinced my mom to buy me this polar heart rate monitor. And I, off I go. I remember Christmas afternoon, here I go. And I did like, I don't know, 30 minutes, easiest run. Was, like, it, a, was it a polar? It was a polar, yeah. yeah. polar yeah, with the original heart rates. Yeah. It was that polar one with a little, little like oblong oval yes. button on the bottom. You know which one I'm talking about? Yes, yeah. I know exactly <laughs> what you're talking about. And that yeah. thing was, I had that thing for years and it mm. was so, it was old faithful by the mm. end. Um and I got home and I remember looking at the literature and saying, okay, that was an easy run, you know, like mm. 60% effort for me, 6 out of 10. But geez, my heart rate was, and I don't know the number anymore, this was like 30 years ago now almost. Um, my, heart, my heart rate was like probably in the one, high 160s, 170s, which based on an age predicted max, um, was like 90% of max or 80, 85% of max. Mm. So I thought, crikey, there's something yeah. wrong, you know. That was my first ever exposure to heart rates. And... The reason I'm telling you this little story um, is that heart rate is, a, is an area that is rife with like general averages applied to individuals, and it just doesn't work. You know, so they'll say, this zone corresponds to 50% of your max. This zone then starts at 60. You know, if you ever go to the gym, you'll see on the machines, 
um, <laughs> they even they even start calling the zones things: the fat burning zone, the aerobic training zone, the anaerobic zone. And so people have been conditioned to think that heart rate behaves similarly between individuals when it actually doesn't. Yeah. And so that's the observation Jason has made. And I'm the same now. Like if I, if I was to buy a Garmin or Polar today and input my information, age, weight, height, and then follow its heart rate, I wouldn't make it out the door half the time. You know, the act of, the act of swinging my leg over the saddle <laughs> elevates <you>. <laughs> my heart rate high enough that I'm almost in zone one and I haven't even turned the pedal over. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Whereas my mate Richard, our mate Richard, he he is consistently 25 to 30 beats lower than I am. Yeah. To the extent that when we were both riding and both relatively fit, we used to check in with one another. I say, Rich, what you at? He says, 160. You, 185. <laughs> All good. You know? Yeah, yeah. You, and, and you have a particularly high heart rate. Yeah, yeah. Mine runs super high. Yeah. And his is yeah. relatively low. Mm. His wife's is cra- even crazy lower. I mean, she mm. she just cannot elevate her heart rate. It's, mm. So you do get big spreads. So, so anyway, the point is what, is, what do we do with that? Now, for Jason, the thing is you have to individualize your zones, which me, which leads us into a discussion about zones. Now, a month or so ago, we did an episode called Train Like a Pro, which was all about zones and how you either polarize or you do a pyramidal training model mm. and where you spend your time in zones one, two, three, and so on. So let's revisit that very quickly if that's okay. Yep. So let's, let's start with a, zone one, a three zone model. The lowest intensity zone is what we call moderate exercise. And by definition, it lies below what we would measure as a, what we call the lactate threshold number one. Now that let's not get stuck on the physiology of that, but lactate threshold number one is the is the point at which steady state exercise. Let me let me try this again in a, in a way that's easy to understand. So, moderate intensity is where you rapidly reach steady state. So, you start riding or running, and within a minute, you know, like literally within the first minute, everything is where it will be for the rest of that run or ride. It's primarily aerobic. Mm. The, the, the demand on breathing is very low, so it would be very easy for you to have a conversation with a mate without having to pause every sentence to gasp for air. Your, if we were to measure certain metabolic variables, they would all indicate that you are at considerably lower than your metabolic and physiological ceiling. Does this make sense? Yes. So that's number one. And number one ends at what we call lactate threshold number one. So the, the border between moderate exercise zone one and zone two is this lt1 which crosses us over into what we can call heavy exercise now heavy exercise is where lactate begins to accumulate in our blood initially but then it levels off again okay you with me so far yeah now the reason it levels off is because our muscles are able to take up not just muscles all organs are able to take up lactate and then metabolize it so we produce it we release it and then we reuse it. So there's like a lactate, what's called the lactate shuttle or cycle. Right. And the best athletes are able to take that lactate out really, really, really effectively and metabolize it for fuel. You know, the less less good ones like ourselves, yeah. not so much. But but the lactate level at, at the zone two starts to like level off. We, we achieve a degree of stability. So there is a steady state, but it's more difficult to get to that steady state. I think in that previous part I said, you know, when you... You, you you go from being on a on a slight descent, let's say, to a flat road or a gradual climb, and the first thirty pedal strokes, you start saying, "Crikey, this has suddenly got quite tough." 
but two, three minutes later, you're like, right, I'm in control of this. Right. That's zone two, okay? Hard, it's slightly harder to breathe, but you could still have a conversation, but you might need a pause every second or third sentence right. just to breathe a bit deeply and then carry on your story about your weekend or whatever you're up to the yeah. night before. <laughs> okay, so then that, then that takes us, that zone spans what depends on your ability, but then we get to what's called lactate threshold two, which is the border between heavy exercise and severe exercise. And then we get into zone three, which is severe. And that, and that LT2 is basically your critical power. Right. So if I was to say to you, go out and run for 40 minutes or ride for 40 minutes as hard as you can, the speed or the power output you maintain is your critical power. And that would be the delineating boundary between heavy and severe exercise. Does it make sense? For, for, uh, it's interesting you say the 41 because I always thought the hour was the was the marker. Yeah, in other words, that was seen as a threshold pace. Yeah, and, and it kind of is because, and, and this is an important point, is that these things are not super precise. No. They're not lines. They're, they're uh, what are you, blocks. Processes, yeah. <laughs> there's, there, there, there's a spectrum across which that happens. So let's say in cycling, your critical power that you sustain for 40 minutes is uh, 280 watts. At 270, you might well be able to go for 55 minutes. Now you're close to the hour. It's only a 10-watt difference, but it makes quite a big difference. Mm. On another day, 280 would be 50 minutes, and another day might be 30 minutes. Mm. So there's natural physiological variation in how you measure it and then how you perform at it mm. subsequent to that. Does that make sense? Yes. So don't get hung up on a single line or point is the is, is in other is words your body's there. not working on lines and points no, it's all a gradual process yeah it's a spectrum from right. like yellow to red <laughs> or from yeah. green to red through yellow yeah. so if zone one is going to be green and zone two is yellow and zone three is red we mm. don't suddenly change like a traffic light we actually get shades into yes. orange <laughs> before sense. the red happens yeah, yeah. so so anyway, so anything between two minutes and 40 minutes is pretty much in that severe intensity spectrum. Mm. Obviously two minutes, now it's an 800 or a one kilometer, or a, I mean, it depends how fast you're cycling, a one kilometer time trial mm. for, on, on a bike, now up, up a hill, for instance. That's as hard as you can go. That's, your, that's, that's a that's super the high anaerobic top three. end so of, in the three zone system. Three zone system yeah. Bottom of zone three, the world's best marathon runners run marathons just below zone three. That's how good they are because they've got these metabolic engines, aerobic, and the metabolic capacity to just recycle metabolites so fast that they mm. can hit such high percentages of max at before they start to fatigue, whereas, you know, the mortals like us, we're at 60% for a, for a marathon. They can get closer to 80%, right? So does this all mm. make sense? So that's yes. zone one, two, and three. Now, yeah. it would be easy if there was only three zones. So, so <laughs> physiologically, we, we delineate these zones by lactate thresholds. The, it's the point at which zone one is the point at which there's no lactate production almost. No, it's never no, not zero, but you know what I mean. Mm. Zone two is there's lactate production, but it doesn't accumulate because our body is able to keep it in balance. And zone three is where its accumulation starts to out, or its production starts to outstrip its use, and so it accumulates rapidly. And mm. fatigue happens not because of the lactate, but because of the metabolic processes that are. Mm. Coincident with it makes yeah. sense. So that 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 final zone you're talking about is a zone that you can't necessarily maintain. That's the zone. So you know, I said like you, you're cruising downhill, you're having a conversation. Mm. The road levels off. You think, mm, I'm working now, mm. but I can handle this. You've gone from zone one into zone two. Mm. Then the road kicks up to six, seven percent, and you say, "Crikey, I'll talk to you at the top." I need to just. <laughs> I need to just. 
pick back a bit. Because you know that yeah. that's a five-minute effort to the top of that like 2K climb, and actually mm. for the next five minutes, you're going to be working very hard. Mm. Mm. And so that's – once you're in zone three, fatigue is inevitable. In fact, yes. it's, it's quite predictable. If you knew your critical power and you knew what your power was at that moment – you could quite accurately, not perfectly, obviously, because again, it's a spectrum. It's mm. not point, you, but you could quite accurately predict your failure point because mm. you start using your battery or burning your matches. Mm. You know, pick your mm. pick your mm. endurance analogy at this point. Yeah. Now, okay. So that's so another. The question is, well, okay, I can't measure my lactate levels. How well, do if I know? You, just to take a step back, so if you're working on something like a, re, a rate of perceived exer- Exa- exertion. You would be able to divide that RPE, which is a simple. If you don't have a heart rate monitor or a power meter, people often advise you to look at look at RPE. That's a great bit of RPE um, advice, yes, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. So, so you don't have access to a lab where you measure lactate thresholds and you know where that LT one and LT two are. Mm-hmm. So, so, okay, now what do you do? Well, heart rates and RPE are the way you do this. And so, you you could by RPE zone one would be anything below about five. Zone two, six, six to eight, yeah. and zone three, nine and ten out of ten. Right? Mm-hmm. The nine is for when you're doing. In fact, maybe zone three, depending on what kind of athlete you are, that middle zone might be six, seven, eight, and then zone three is nine and ten, or it might be six, seven in the middle, and then eight, nine, ten, because you know you might be a really strong endurance athlete and you can sit at eight out of ten for forty minutes. Then mm. that's still in your zone three but it's an eight out of 10. But the point is zone one is below six. Zone two is up to eight. And then zone three is eight, nine or 10, right? right? Or nine or 10, depending. As far as heart rate goes, you see now, this is where I get reluctant to prescribe because we are so different. Mm. But what, what you now need to do is you need to actually run some experiments on yourself. And you need to say, right, when I go out and I do a 30 to 40 minute maximum effort on the indoor trainer, Let's say fictional character John again. He does his 40-minute max. He needs to check what his heart rate is, not right at the end, but for, say, the middle sort of 15, 20 minutes there. Because whatever his heart rate is there is probably close to the border between his zone 2 and 3 in this in this three-zone model. Make sense? Right. Yes. Because that's the heart rate he's going to achieve when he's at critical power. It's the heart rate associated with CP. Right. At the same By the same concept or token – if he is doing what is a very easy ride that he thinks he could do indefinitely for two, three hours, his heart rate there will be what corresponds to his boundary between zone one and two. Right. And then, so now you've, you, again, you've got your delineations lines or zones based on what you observe in yourself. So for instance, if I was to go do 30 minutes as hard as possible, I would probably have a heart rate, you know, starting out in the 170s, by the end it'll be 190, but I'd probably peg mine at like 180 to 184. And that would be your upper zone two? That would be the boundary between two and three mm. for me. So for me, so, at 52 years of age, I would look at my perception of, of effort there and I would say that mine would probably be anything close to 160 of my heart rate mm. with a maximum heart rate of 170 is I'm, I am probably I can probably hold 155 for half an hour, but not higher than that once I go have 155 I'm 
So then, because we don't want solid lines, we want shaded yes. lines or blurred lines. You, I would probably then say 152 to 156 mm. would be the boundary between your zone two and three. Yes, that makes Above sense. 160, I'm now in my he- severe exercise domain. Mm. Below 155, but let's say 152, I'm in my heavy. And then you'll, you know your zone one's probably going to be in the 130s, I would have thought, maybe. 120 to 130, okay. something there. Now, no, I don't want to get ahead of what you're probably going to say here, but... If we look at, and people love to look at numbers, they love to be able to work out percentages. And having read some of the literature, working for runners all and bicycling, and having read up out of interest for my own sake, is that you talk about heart rate range. In other words, the difference between your resting versus your max, and that's what you must work on. Therefore, if your heart rate range is you've got a, your minimum is 150 and your maximum is 180, mm-hmm. you've got a heart rate range of one. 30 or whatever it is mm. so therefore you take 130 and you then say x amount x percentage is your zone three x percentage is your zone two are you saying that to do that is dangerous because it's not an it's not a number that you can necessarily work out it's an it's a it's a feeling that you need to apply yourself to your own experience um it's dangerous if you become so uh tied to to a single point at which you go zone two to zone three or zone one to zone two Mm. that you start to actually obsess about one point but it's not dangerous when you start understanding zones so when you start understanding that zone one is your easy aerobic zone and that most of your riding or your running should be done in that zone then actually you're in quite safe territory because it's the the combination of heart rate and rpe starts to give you feedback on how your body and your brain are doing in response to training. Because remember, the third variable here is your pace. So, okay, I'm going to go around eight-minute miles or five minutes a K. Normally, RPE is going to be five, and my heart rate is going to be 152, whatever. Yeah. If I suddenly go out one day and I'm running, and my heart rate's 10 beats higher, my RPE is the same and my pace is the same, but the heart rate's elevated, well, what does that mean? It means something. If I go out and the RPE is elevated at the same pace, that means something. Mm. So you, you, I've spoken before about triangulating with three points always. You need the workload, which is the output, power output or running speed. You need the heart rate, which is the physiological response, and you need the RPE, which is the assimilation of how you basically are responding to that session. Mm. And if you use those three together, then you are able to control quite well the training intensity. So you do want to you do want to work according to zones and you do want your recovery days and your easy rides to be in zone 1. You can't you you would be making a mistake if you went out with the intention of an easy ride and then you crossed over and you spend most of it in that heavy domain zone 2, right? That would be mm. a training error if repeated often enough. You know what that is. <laughs> Even if you don't listen to any of these podcasts, you know what heavy versus light is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You kind of you kind of can overcomplicate this a mm. little bit. Mm. So my my explanation to everyone, including Jason, would be to take a month and just like listen, what observe, train like you normally would. Ask yourself how you're feeling and ask what the heart rate was at that moment, and you'll quite quickly learn where your own boundaries are. And you can troubleshoot, not troubleshoot, but you quite quickly spot discrepancies. If you, if you go out and you do like a 40-minute, what you consider a steady effort, 
and 30 minutes of that is spent above like zone three or in polo and Garmin zone five. We'll talk about how you turn a three into a five in a moment. Yeah. Then you then your zones are wrong <laughs> yeah. because it's, it's not an easy effort or your, or your sense of perception is warped and you need to go and think about <laughs> what a massacre you are. I mean, we laugh about that, but perception of effort can be warped it a, can lot, be, yeah. a lot of the extent. Yeah. That's why it's not a particularly accurate way of measuring effort. By itself. Yes. Exactly. All right. So now how do so, we extrapolate that to zone so, fives and zone seven. So, so, so zone three is the threshold point. Mm. It, by definition almost, it's critical power or maximal lactate steady state. There's, a, there's an academic debate around whether that delineation between two and three is a CP or an MLSS. You can listen to our previous podcast to explore that. I but, mean, to put numbers on it, and I hate to keep pushing you on the numbers thing because I'm also trying to understand this myself. If if you were going to say that threshold point, it's like in running, it would be five k pace potentially. Uh, yeah, where so you, it, where you where you can still run for twenty minutes, half an hour, but you're not going to be able to run at that pace for an hour. So a little bit slower than five k pace slower, because okay. if you can do it for thirty minutes, okay, for some people that is five k pace, but but that's why it's more like for time because you're you're right to express it by time, not distance. Mm. That's why I say it's 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 a forty to forty five minute effort. Okay. That's that's for most people. Elite athletes higher because they are so good at sitting at a high percentage of maximum. Right. So they could they could probably go for an well close to an hour at CP. Mm. But for most of us, it's forty five minutes. That would be my suggestion. So that's so that's quite a nice ten k pace work with for that. a decent runner. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's quite a good number. Yeah. Right. That's so. where your zone three starts, right? And right. it's threshold. So that's the point at which talking becomes uncomfortable. Mm. That's the point at which. Steady state ends and inevitable fatigue starts to creep up on you. And again, the, the speed with which it creeps up on you depends on how much beyond that point you go, right? It right. makes sense. If you sprint, mm. fatigue is going to mm. hit you quite hard. Mm. Ask, ask um, cyclists in Tour de France, yes. <laughs> right? If, you, if you're at, at threshold pace, you can do the whole climb. No worries. You'll finish at your limit at the finish line, but you, it's under control. But that's because you were right on that borderline. You know, they're climbing, the last climbs at the Tour de France, those guys are climbing at or just above their CP. Mm. You know, for 35 minutes on the Col du Grand Lon or Alpe d'Huez today, 39 minutes, whatever it is. Mm. That's, the, that's the sustainable power. So at the point at which you're about to become no longer steady state, right. that should be zone four in a five zone model. So what, you know, we spoke about zone three. That yep. that's the that now becomes zone four, and then zone five is your super high intensity, super max heart rate zone. So mm. add another five, ten percent. Right. So now you've created two zones out of three. Right. So zone three gets split into two new ones. They are four and five. <laughs> okay. Does that make sense? Right. That no, making sense. No, zone two okay. is basically zone three in a polar system, mm-hmm. and then zone one gets split. I would split zone zone one into two new zones. Mm-hmm. And there's the recovery zone, which is the very low heart rate stuff, which is like in polar, the white zone. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then there's a blue zone two, which goes up to the border of what in a three zone system is the border of zone one and two. Right. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes, so you okay. add you add the zones at the extremes, in my opinion. That's how I would do it. Yes. And I would keep zone two, which is to say the heavy exercise domain, as the middle zone. So zone two in a three zone system is the same as zone three in a five mm. zone system. Mm. Yeah. Mm. 
it's funny i think we all use different measurements and i think instinctively as you say you get to know your body and i remember and i've often mentioned phil maffetone who was the sort of the the godfather of heart monitor training and he had this whole philosophy around 180 minus your age because if you were 180 minus your age you were definitely aerobic and his argument was is that yes you might be higher than that in terms of your threshold or your lactate threshold mm. or whatever, or lactate turn point, whatever you want to call it. But 180 minus your age ensured that you were aerobic. Mm. And if you wanted to train aerobically, you trained at that level. If you wanted to risk going any harder than that, you risk going anaerobic. Mm. But his methodology was simple. You were either aerobic or you were anaerobic. Therefore, if you want to ride aerobic, which, ride well within the aerobic zone. Which probably captures, I don't know, like 75% of people. If, yes. if, if humans are distributed across a, a bowel curve or a normal curve, then probably that captures like four-fifths of them. But the, the one-fifth who have high heart rates sounds like Jason is one, I'm one. Mm. I would hardly be moving at the pace that he's prescribing. So I have to like actually say, you know what, Phil, I'm going to risk this because <laughs> I know it's not a risk. If I if I was 180 minus my age, you might not be moving, but is but in the, in practical purposes, 182 minus your age would be low for you, but you would be aerobic. Yeah, but I wouldn't make no it up. I wouldn't make it up a three percent <laughs> climb, eh? It's I'd have to stop and walk because like that that for me yes. that would be. Sorry, that was my bad. Should have turned my phone off. <laughs> um, for, for me, uh, 180 minus my age is 140. I'm I'm barely moving at that pace up a hill. I, I wouldn't be able to turn. I'd, I'd capsize. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so unless I could ride a perfectly flat road, like I see these guys riding in Holland and Belgium when I watch, look at their Strava files, you know, they ride 100k with 100 meters of vert. Mm. I couldn't do the rides around here yeah. at that at that heart rate. Yeah. So I have to say sorry, Phil, point. but I'm going to go up to one. 59 mm. that's where i'm still super comfortable at 159 mm. so that's mine yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. so individualize yeah. it do some testing on yourself and apply those principles where you know zone four or higher is heavy or severe three is heavy and two or lower is, is moderate or easy so yeah thanks very much for that and uh, i think that is yeah i mean we, we talk about heart rate monitor a lot in the show and we've done it on a number of occasions and focused on it and on various podcasts but jason i i always appreciate questions like that because every time we discuss it and i live in this world every single day of my life with runners world and bicycling as the editor of those two publications and i still always appreciate a new explanation around it and i've learned a lot from this explanation even though I could probably sit and advise somebody else about their heart rate because sometimes we just need to be reminded about some of the practicalities of it. So yeah, great, great question, Jason, and much appreciated. So let's uh, have a look at some other uh, training related questions. And this comes from Julie, who is an athletic trainer in the US. She says, I'm a US patron here. I'm a certified athletic trainer. There are still a lot of coaches that tell kids to put their hands on their heads for recovery. The study came out in 2019, and maybe there are others, to show hands on knees is a better recovery position. But many coaches admit, especially hands on knees, makes the athlete look weak. Maybe you can discuss this in a podcast. Okay, so <laughs> what's interesting about this, and I mean, it, when I read this question first of all, I thought, oh, what's, what, what's to this? I mean, how you recover doesn't really make much difference. So the classic hands on your knees position midway through a soccer match when you're exhausted. And then there's also the one where you put your hands behind your head yeah. and you try and breathe. I've always believed that the more you can open up the open lungs, up airways, yeah. therefore, the more air you can get in there for you recover quicker. Someone told you that, though. Someone has to have told you that. Maybe my logic told me that. Yeah. My logic said if you open up the chest... 
and uh, open up my chest, I'll be able to get more air in there for I recover. But there's no doubt that if I'm resting on my knees, I feel more relaxed. So what does the science say? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I was told that specifically. I distinctly remember as a back in back, probably the first time I ran with my heart rate monitor and I did a track session. <laughs> as a 15-year-old. As a 15-year-old <laughs> hope, hopeless wannabe. Um, the coach was... No, 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 no. You used to, if you finished the set, you're doing 300s, whatever it was. If you bend down, put your hands on your knees, or you. The other one that I found is quite a good recovery position is down on your haunches, right? Right. Um, just get yes. low is like, I just, that's all I wanted to do. And he says, no, 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 get up, hands on your head, walk tall, open the airway. So I remember being instructed in that one. Yeah. But it never made sense to me because the moment I did that, I felt much worse. Yes. You feel lightheaded, actually. Yeah, you actually feel you actually feel horrible. Mm. You think, well, how can this be aiding? So let's let's think about what's the point of of that. Let, whether it's a minute between hard efforts, whether it's three minutes, like and we'll talk about a study on this that used a three minute recovery. What's the point of that recovery, that period? What's the point? The point of recovery the, of that those three minute period. What do you want? To, what's the main thing you want by the end of those three minutes? So that you can continue playing at the same intensity. <laughs> exactly. Right. And surely, logically, the thing that makes you feel the best is going to achieve that. Yes. <laughs> so actually, this is an but example. I love the concept of looking weak, though. <laughs> yeah, okay. but you know where you know where that is, is is like it doesn't do this in two parts. Yeah, it doesn't matter if you look weak in an interval training session after rep six of eight. 400s, let's say, with 90-second recoveries or something. It doesn't really matter if you look weak, if if everyone understands, like, that's your recovery position. Yes, but if you're playing in a soccer match <laughs> If you're in a competitive players, situation, yes. then it doesn't matter what you do to show that you're recovering, you look weak, in okay. my opinion. I mean, if I saw a guy walking around with his hands on his head standing tall, I'm saying that guy's suffering because he wouldn't be adopting that pose if he wasn't hurting badly. I suppose badly. it's subjective because I think somebody so, resting their body on their hands looks weaker to me than somebody standing up straight. <laughs> But, but that's the thing is, if I know that that's his recovery, and that, I'm saying yeah, I've, I've the only thing that would not betray weakness is if he did nothing at all different. Mm. If he kept running, I'd say that guy's not weak. <laughs> so, but I understand it looks like the weak position because it looks like you're beaten down, especially mm. if you go down on your haunches. You know, actually, I just need to lie down here. <laughs> mm. Incidentally, lying down is the best way to recover, yes, but that's not happening. That definitely looks weak. Yes. <laughs> So they do a study in the U.S. actually, and this is the link Julie shared with me. So it was cool to see. And then, you know, the funny thing was this study started popping up on social media a week after Julie sent it to me where people were summarizing it. Mm. And what they did is they took a group of footballers in the U.S., college women football players, Division mm. Two, so a reasonable level. And they made them do four reps of four minutes on a treadmill with three-minute break in between. And they ran quite hard, not super, I mean, 95% max. So it's a hard effort, not mm. an exhaustive one. And they either had them put the hands on the knees or they had the hands on the heads upright. So you're either bent over, touching your knees, or you're standing tall, the old oak tree pose. <laughs> mm. And they measured, and, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a really simple study, and it asks a lot of questions, but it's cool. I mean, uh, th there's, there's things I would have done <coughs> to build on it, but um, what they basically did is they measured breathing and heart rate in that recovery period. And the finding is that when you put your hands on your knees, your tidal volume is higher. So in other words, you can breathe in more than if your hands on your tidal heads. Tidal volume being the amount of air you can bring into your lungs. Per breath. Right. Per, per breath, tidal, as in like one tide. Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's higher. And the amount by which your heart rate drops is greater when your hands are on your knees compared to when your hands are on your heads. 
So the conclusion is, based on heart rate data and, bre- and, and also the amount of carbon dioxide that you breathe out is higher when hands on knees than hands on head. Uh-huh. So you're getting rid of the bad stuff as well. Exactly. So, so your, your metabolic benefits and your cardiovascular benefits seem to be better in recovery when your hands are on your knees than when your hands are on your head and you're standing upright. So more oxygen is actually getting so, into your lungs in that position than it would yeah, be and so this standing is, up. And so it's really interesting. And like, I'll be honest, anatomy <laughs> was never my strong thing when I was a student. And so I looked very briefly into this and then kind of zoned out. But the you know, the diaphragm is what controls breathing. And it turns out that when our... When our spine is flexed, in other words, when we're bent over, as in hands on knees, and our, we have what's called thoracic flexion, mm-hmm. it also causes our rib cage to rotate internally, and it puts the diaphragm in a better position to breathe. And when you actually put your hands on your head and you stand tall, what happens is that the diaphragm is actually stretched out, and it's actually less efficient and effective in that position, okay. because it's 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 its length tension position is not optimal. Right. And so in actual fact... Somewhat counterintuitively, that bent over position enables better breathing than standing upright and tall and stretched. Right. And so the conclusion. So HK, hands on knees, versus HH, hands on head. HK performs That's better. That's how they do it in scientific papers. Yeah, yeah, exactly that. <laughs> That's exactly how the study described it. It was HK or HH. Mm. And HK is better. And I'm I'm not surprised. I mean, for me, it's all about perception. Is, is if, you've, if you've told me that I'm going to run another 400 rep in 90 seconds, get ready. I'm saying, I don't know. I don't care what you think. I'm going to do the thing that makes me feel the best because the better I feel, the more ready I will be. <laughs> and mm. It turns out that it's, <laughs> your body knows what it needs. And the really interesting thing is, because remember they did four reps, is they measured the thoracic angle. So, right. and as you get more and more fatigued, that angle gets higher and higher and higher. Right. Now that's not, they're not instructing these players to bend more, mm-hmm. but just as you accumulate fatigue and recovery becomes more and more important, mm. that thoracic flexion becomes higher and higher mm. because the body just knows to get it's it's actually amazing it's interesting because uh, at the time of recording this we just watched uh, one of the best stages of the tour de france ever stage 11 where uh, tade pogaccio yeah, was, and what uh, do they lost. do and tade mm. pogaccio at the end of that stage mm. and uh, exactly. jonas vingegaard when they finish the stage they're on the handlebars they're they're creating that thoracic exactly. opening that's what that's, you do that's what you, they naturally do you yeah. unclip one foot or both you bend over, you put your head on your stem, and you yeah. hope you don't throw up. Yeah, basically, that's what it is. We yeah. all do that as well. I mean, they don't we stand know. up with their heads, then their hands no, on their heads. Yeah. No, or you see them sit down like Van der when he won that stage with yes. the G- Giro but against Germain in the beginning. With their legs up. Exactly. So they're creating that angle. And so, so there's two things going on. One is the breathing because mm. you're putting the diaphragm in what is a, you know, as I mentioned, you have, you have basically as a consequence of that thoracic flexion, you have ribcage internal rotation. And it optimizes the, the function of the diaphragm. The other thing that you're doing is that you're, you're helping the pump because your heart no longer needs to work against gravity yeah. because your head and your heart are the same height. And, you know, that's why we faint is because blood pressure drops mm. and the body's last resort is to say, let's see if I can fix this with a bit of support from gravity mm. <laughs> or yeah. let's see if I can take gravity out yeah. of the picture. Yeah. And, and I do think that bending down it achieves that. So there's a there's a hypotension component to this as well. So yes. both for the breathing component, the metabolic, because you're now exhaling the bad stuff, the CO two, and the blood pressure, getting getting your hands on your knees is actually a better way to go than um, hands on head. So now you know. So Julie, there we go. Well, great you, know, you know what would so you know, you know what would be interesting, and this is the bits in the study that would have been nice to explore is 
obviously it would be cool to know blood pressure and a few internal measurements and mm. so on, but then actually see what happens to the performance. Because in this trial, they did four four-minute blocks at 95%. I would have done, if I, well, not this one, but my next study would be like three at 95% mm. and then three as hard as you can go. And then actually measure whether the, the postural thing changes the performance, the, the recovery position changes the performance. Because mm. based on what they've measured, your hypothesis would be that in those three self-paced ones, they will start to progressively outperform the, the, the hands on knees will outperform the hands on head. Mm. And then you've got a performance outcome in addition to what's actually quite basic. It's just heart rate recovery and breathing. Mm. So, I, I think the best way to look at it is just to see the end of an 800 meters. Yeah, the, what World do they do? the World Athletics Championships, of course, happening as we as you probably listen to this. And uh, if you watch the end of the 800 or the 5,000 or even the 10,000, you see what the majority of athletes do. Those that aren't sitting on the ground are normally got their hands on their knees because that's the natural position. So, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And those guys are used to recovering quite often because of training except the winner you see and that's always been yes. an interesting the winner goes off and runs the next 100 meters as fast as he raced yes, yes. he's charging off on his victory lap i mean you see the guy down the back straight he looks like he hasn't run a race that's right yeah. and so that shows you there's an emotional component to it as well and that's why collapse happens there's an emotional component to collapse cross-country skiing they just fall over mm. you see it's because they've got soft nice cool soft snow to <laughs> land and that that gives them an excuse to Not fall close. over but yeah but um tartan's a bit harder right anyways <laughs> so so julie the answer is you right. I, I still think you do what makes you feel the best but the scientific evidence supports that getting low is better than going high lovely question julie yeah. thanks very much um next question another training question from uh, kun fun Ria, who talks a little bit about um training in the heat and he says he hates the heat he hates summer um, I love summer. I don't like this winter at all. But uh, no, I'm team to Kun own. on this one. You're, you're more of a. More yeah, of I'm a, definitely team Kun. I, you're team Kun. Like you. he says, uh, what, did, what was his word? He said. Um, he says I enjoy this. He says um, I, I. It's sweaty. Sunscreen gets in my eyes. I need to wear sunglasses. I'm a summer grinch. I'm a summer grinch. <laughs> yeah, that's it. I'm a summer <laughs> grinch. Yeah, so am I. He says he stumbled across an article that said five weeks of heat training increases hemoglobin hemoglobin mass in elite cyclists and he wants to know because he hates training in summer is it actually just a bad attitude and he needs to get his benefit of riding in heat is actually quite significant mm. does does the study support that yeah so this is a really interesting study it was done on elite cyclists average vo2 max like 76 so that's mm. as good guys and there were 20 in total, and they were split into two groups. They, they kept doing their normal training in the morning, but every afternoon, so five afternoons a week, they either did an hour of easy cycling in hot conditions, 38 degrees Celsius, so that's warm. I mean, that's pushing 100 Fahrenheit, or an hour easy cycling in like normal air room temperature conditions. And so the, these, these guys were doing, I think I worked it out in the paper, about 12 hours of training a week, Five of it was these controlled sessions. And what they did is after five weeks, they measured the change in hemoglobin mass. And they found that the, the guys who'd done heat training had improved their hemoglobin mass by 4.5%, whereas the control people, the control cyclists, hadn't improved at all. Now, hemoglobin mass matters because it's one of the main contributors to your VO2 max. Well, it's the oxygen-carrying exa- exactly. component of blood, yeah. So you're increasing your ceiling and you're increasing your capacity to carry oxygen at any workload. Yeah. Then they did a you see they didn't I think it's probably because they're not quite statistically powered with twenty guys, but they did a bunch of tests, like a fifteen minute test. They measured power output like at lactate thresholds, all that kind of stuff as well. And they, they found hints of improvement in the heat, but not anything decisive. So 
what we would call a clear effect on hemoglobin mass, but a modest or small effect on performance. But nevertheless, it's still enticing because it does suggest that training in the heat gives you an, an additional benefit when you then perform in the cool conditions. Now, listeners who heard us in our, I think it was the podcast with Richie Pointer, the Marine, Trip Hawthorne, who's another patron, sent in a question very similar to this about mm. training in the heat and whether it gives additional right. advantages. <coughs> and the answer is, at the moment, it does look like heat is similar to altitude. You know, the concept of altitude is that I've got a race that I'm going to do at sea level. Mm -hmm. I'm going to head up to altitude and I'm going to give my body that additional stress to train at altitude. And then I'm going to come to down to sea level and cash in. It does seem like heat might do the same thing. So I can go away preparing for a race in coolish conditions train in the heat and get an additional benefit over and above the training. Right. So in response to Trip Hawthorne, I spoke about a paper where they'd looked at certain mitochondrial enzymes and they'd found that if you do the same training in hot conditions as in cold conditions, even matched for intensity, your mitochondrial enzymes, your oxidative ability, so that's to say your ability to burn fat as fuel is higher as a consequence of heat training than cool training. And this study suggests that your hemoglobin mass might go higher mm. as a consequence. And interestingly, that, that increase in hemoglobin in this study was 4.5%. That's the same as these authors have found as a result of four weeks at altitude. Well, that was my next question. Is there yeah. a similarity no. as to what's more beneficial, altitude or heat? Right now, <laughs> So the, you're saying it's similar? In The same group found 4.5% from heat training and altitude. The problem is, and this is the fine print, is that the heat adaptation happened in these elite athletes and the altitude benefit was in a group of untrained people living at 3,500 meters, training right. at 3,500 meters. Now, that could go both ways. It might be, it might be that an, an untrained person in the heat gets even more than 4.5% hemoglobin because they've got a they're lower to start with. Makes sense. Mm. So the the point is that when it comes to hemoglobin, the heat might be a bigger stimulus than altitude is, mm. depending on your timing and how you go about doing it. Now, wow. so that's that's two studies. The, the Trip Hawthorne one that we spoke about previously and this one both suggest benefits accrued in the heat might be bigger than those from training in the cold. Sure. The, the danger here is that you say, okay, I'm going to train the heat. The problem is you can't train as well in the heat as you do in the cold. You see, and that's where this study... It's, well, in terms of intensity. Yeah. yeah, and that's where this study is interesting because, again, it's cool to study elite athletes, but the generalizability of this study to us <laughs> is questionable because, remember, these guys are doing two sessions a day. They're doing 12, 13 hours a week. Mm. They are fit enough to handle an hour a day of hot riding even if it is easy, they just so you know, they, they made them ride at what was basically an RPE between eleven and fifteen on a scale from six to twenty. So it would be, it would be, what you'd describe as like comfortable to slightly hard. Yeah. So it's not you're not you're not bleeding from the eyes for an hour every day, but mm. it's not it's not a soft pedal either. It's a steady hour mm. in the heat. I would say that most people listening to this, if you went off and did that, you would overtrain and suffer pretty quickly. <laughs> it would be tough. Mm -hmm. So an elite athlete can handle it. We might have to take a little bit more caution and say, not an hour, let's do 15 minutes three times a week, mm -hmm. then do 25 minutes three times a week, 45 minutes three times a week, and eventually adapt to the heat because it does take time to adapt. Mm -hmm. 
the question then is, do I get the same benefit? You know, so it's 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 quite difficult to prescribe based on this training study. Well, but the principle seems to be exist. Well, what's interesting about that is we talk a lot about the aerobic versus strength. So those athletes, the professional athletes, we talk a lot about them going to train at coastal level but living in things like hyperbaric tents where they, mm. they sleep at altitude and train at coastal level. And you say, well, what's the point of that? If you can train at high altitude and build lots of hemoglobin, you're going to be better. But then you can't do the intensity that you can right. do at a coastal level. Exactly. So heat and altitude – promote aerobic benefits, benefits but they don't necessarily yeah. promote strength benefits. Correct. Am I right uh, in saying that? Intense, not necessarily strength, but I know what you mean by strength. You mean higher intensity higher performance intensity, benefits. Yes. Exactly. Yes. I mean, I know, for instance, if you want to go and do a hard session on a bike and you want to really build you, your power, you're likely to get a better results with more oxygen, in other yeah. words, at coastal level. Yeah, and you don't do that one in the heat because yes. within 25 minutes you are wilting. Correct. And then you compromise the the, the actual desired training benefit from it. Yes. That's exactly right. So that's the thing. You're always trading one thing off against another. Correct. And that's why, for instance, the very best athletes, swimmers, endurance athletes, they will do an altitude block at a very specific time of the year, and it's the time of the year that they're not trying to do high-intensity work. So in other words, it's in that early phase of base training. So I'm going to go to my altitude, like they go to Colorado Springs, the U.S. swimmers or flag Mm -hmm. staff, Mm -hmm. the runners, Mammoth Lakes is a big camp. And they will do mainly, and we can refer back to our earlier discussion, zone one and zone two training, but very little in zone three. Or zone two and three, but very little in four and five, if you want to use that zone system, right? Mm. Because you're right. if, If you go out and you want to do a severe exercise session, and it's going to be a anaerobic interval type session. The priority is to do the session before hit the targets, neuromuscular adaptations and metabolic adaptations. And if you do that at altitude, you're not getting those. So therefore, you 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 target the training to the environment. Yeah. And that's what that's what. So for Kun, who's training for Boston, a couple things is Boston could be hot. <laughs> It could be freezing it's cold like it was a couple of years. most likely to be cold. <laughs> it could. I remember that one year it was so cold like a lot of the guys didn't finish. They were like, no mm. ways, but banned hop in the bus. Mm. And the there was in the Japanese fellow one because he was so accustomed to it. Mm. Other years, Boston is brutal because it's hot and humid. And if it's going to be hot and humid, then you cannot prepare for it without training the heat because mm. you have to adapt. But if, it's, if Boston's going to be mild, you will get benefit from some heat training but now's the time to be doing it. Uh, it's actually right. a good time for a northern hemisphere because you can you can get that heat base work done. Mm. But again, don't go out and do five hours a week in the heat straight off the bat because right. you will overtrain. The heat is a training stimulus that you should look at as if it's intensity or volume. You know, you wouldn't run 160k a week. Don't go and do 300 minutes a week in the heat, in the heat. You've got to earn the right. We say this. We've said this before. Mm. Earn the right to exercise in the heat. There we go. Mm. So, yes, there's the advice. I mean, it, there is advantages. But yeah, uh, and, in, uh, and in fact, based on some research, it's not a poor man's altitude. It could actually be yeah, as good, if not be better. As good, better. Yeah. yeah. But in this respect, with, anyway. In this balance respect. that with the fact that if you're, you're you, you might be building aerobic capacity, but the training involves not just aerobic capacity. Mm. You want to build other things yeah. as well. And incidentally, the the, so what's happening in the heat is we sweat, we lose plasma volume. Yeah. Our body makes more plasma. It dilutes our blood. Mm-hmm. Our kidney senses that. It says, whoa, hang on. 
I don't want this dilute low hematocrit. Mm. I'm going to make more red blood cells. Mm. And so that's the that's the cause of the hemoglobin mass going up is yeah. that our kidney, they call it a crit meter. <laughs> mm. They're saying that the kidney's monitoring the hematocrit. And it, if you increase it with plasma volume expansion like the heat, we'll just mm. chuck out some more hemoglobin. Mm. And that's that's the mm. mechanism for it. Okay, so a couple of quick questions we're going to get to. And then we're going to just, uh, for the uh, our last part of our discussion today, we're going to talk about something which uh, Ross and I can not really uh, uh, figure out whether, where we stand on it. But very quickly, <laughs> um, th- there was a, a question from pa- uh, Paulius Pecura. Pecura. Mm. He says, he's, I'm probably a, bit wee, a wee bit late, because he's from Scotland. That's why he uses the word we. Um, there was a recent article from Keswick Mountain Rescue where a runner got hypothermia and body temperature dropped to 18.8 degrees Celsius. And we're talking... Uh, a couple of episodes ago about training in the cold yeah. and what the minimum temperature, I think the record you said was... I think 13.7 or 13.4 in a skier in Scandinavia. Yeah. And I might, have, so, I might have stitched you up there because there were two... John McGibbon also emailed about the same article because mm. they'd both heard the podcast, these two patrons, and both emailed. And I don't know which one, whether it's Paulius or John who's Scottish. I'm leaning, I'm leaning towards McGibbon <laughs> because I, I basically gave Mike a, a summary of the, the questions <laughs> of you'd the sent questions. in and I, I just grouped well, we Paulius and John together. So, so I'm <laughs> apologizing on Mike's behalf for that. It might be John from Scotland. But nevertheless, Paulius and John both, it caught their eye, I mm. guess, because they listened to the podcast. And it's relevant in Scotland because it's cold mm. there. So this, this was a... Yeah, this was a runner who, who basically was running with mates and got hypothermia. Then they, they put him in what's called a survival bag, something you run with when you're running in uh, in South Africa. I don't even know what that is. I'm guessing it's one of those space like blanket. foil space blanket type things. And they went and fetched the Keswick Mountain Rescue. They came to find the guy. They found an empty, bla- an empty bag. But luckily he'd been bleeding because he'd cut himself on the ice. And they were able to find this guy like completely comatose. I mean, he was, he was frozen and clinically dead sure but and in, in the article it actually talks about their principle is you're not dead until you're warm and dead you've heard that one before yeah <laughs> and so they, they get him back down to the hospital i think newcastle they get a special machine which we spoke about in that podcast remember i told you about you have how to they, warm them slowly yeah you got to warm them slowly by actually taking the blood out yeah, and putting incredible. warm blood back in mm-hmm. fascinating so he, he made it through 18.8 this was in january this year and the article on him, one of the articles that either Paulus or John shared, he's running a, a race now to raise funds for the, the rescue team that saved his life. So, Incredible. Yeah. Amazing story, yeah. Well, thanks for that story. Mm. And then Tony Abbott, um, and this is something I didn't realize, yeah, but he's talking about an, an under-16, he's a parent of an under-16 cyclist in the UK, and apparently the UCI have just um, changed the rules regarding gearing mm. on bikes for that that age group under sixteen. In other words, previously, um, apparently you weren't allowed to have a gear lower than fourteen teeth on the back. In other words, most bikes these days will have teeth between eleven and ten on the back, yeah. so they can only have a fourteen. In other words, they don't have a big gear on the back. Um, but they've changed that now to accommodate all the gearing that's available. Mm. So in other words, there's no restrictions on those uh, kids. But I mean, I suppose it asks the question, first of all, why did the res- why did the rule exist in the first place? Yeah. And why has it changed now? He's suggesting because they've now found out, according to research, that riding big gears doesn't destroy the knees of youngsters. And I, I looked for that research. I, I found the UCI document. I tried to look into other UCI published it. I could not find a specific research paper that studied this. I mm. doubt it exists. 
But I think what they're claiming is that the absence of evidence equates to the evidence that there's no risk. <laughs> yeah. As if, if there was a risk of riding these big gears on, on knee injuries in youth, they would have had it. Mm. Because there certainly are papers that show that one of the predictors of knee pain in cycling is pedaling high torque, low, low cadence. Yes. So it is logical, and most cyclists listening to this will know, that if you go out and you spend a week riding at like super heavy gears and low cadence, you are going to have knee pain. Your knees are going to ache. You're yeah. going gonna to yeah. feel that joint it's logical. issue. It's logical. Now, what's interesting is that you know the, the wording was that, that the rollout distance couldn't exceed 7.93 from your gear ratio. Now, that, otherwise, that's the distance per pedal stroke. Exactly. Right? That's yeah. the that's the it's the revolutions of the wheel. Mm. So, in this, it's the rollout. It's the it's the distance per pedal stroke, which is yeah. calculated by the rev- revolutions of the wheel and the right. wheel circumference. Right. So, depending on what wheel you used. <laughs> Your your potential gear ratios would change, right? Yes. So if you if you were riding in like Paris Roubaix for juniors and it's cobbles, you could ride a bigger wheel, like mm. slightly higher. Like you might ride a twenty eight, which has a slightly higher circumference, and then your gear ratio would change. But you couldn't get away under that seven point nine three meter limit that they set, mm. short of having a fifty two eleven maybe. 50, sorry, 52.14. 14, yes. 52.14. Most bikes now would be like 52, 53.11. Yeah. And a 53.11 gives you a rollout of um, like, t- well, it depends on your wheel circumference, but about 10 meters. Yes. Right. There are calculators online where you can actually work out mm. your gearing based on the meters per yeah. stroke, which yeah. gives you an idea of what your gearing should look like. Yeah. So that the one rationale was, and, and Tony on on his in his message introduced himself as the father, parent of a father of a sixteen year old cyclist. So his concern is around the the youth. Now, the rationale for it in the first place is sketchy. I found some articles speculating that it's either the knees or it's the speeds. I'm I'm not convinced by the knees because you could you could be like pick another gear. I mean, you just got a bike, right? Yours is a forty. What's you? What are you riding? Forty. Well, I've got a I've on got a front. one bike in the front of my new bike that I bought. It's a Bianchi gravel bike, and it's a, a forty forty two on the back with a with a big gear of a forty eleven. Yeah. So right. So let's say you were in your forty twelve, right? I mean yes. that's. That's not an aggressive gear ratio. Not really, no. But a 6% gradient it is. Yes. <laughs> because now that so the, the point I'm it's trying to relative. make the point I'm trying to make is that I I don't I don't see how you spare kids knees with gear ratios when they're going to go up climbs because they're going to go up Because they're, gear, they're yeah. never in 5311 anyway. 100%. So that didn't really make sense to me because, you know, like if, if you're in a, just out of interest, if you're in a 5311 on a flat road, well, any road, <laughs> um, and you're pedaling at 100 RPM, you're going 60K an hour. Mm. I mean, how often is anyone other than a pro doing that? Yeah. It's not, it's not common, That's right? That's why I have one bar because I don't need to Yeah, because you're never, gonna get, you're never yes. gonna use it. And so yeah. I, I, would, I would suggest that the sparing of the knees is, unless, unless the coach is putting a kid on flat roads and saying, ride right in a 5311 and you're doing torque intervals, on a flat road, mm. but that's okay. That's just bad coaching, right? Because yeah. what are you developing in a <laughs> in a kid at that age? But the, the reality is, he's probably doing those on a five six percent grade in a in a thirty nine twelve. Yeah, he's probably doing the same thing to the knees in a low. So, so you can't really protect the knees with gears when you could hurt them with gradients. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, speed, I get maybe, but. You know, if, if they're riding these climbs like we see, okay, they're not riding Tour de France level climbs, but 10% gradient down, even 7%, you're hitting 60 easy. Yes. So I'm not, 
I'm not really sure what yeah. the rationale I mean, was for it. I mean, I suppose the only way we would have actually found out about this is to figure out when the law was made mm. around that, that smaller chain. Yeah. Who, why did they do it? What was the reasoning behind that? We don't know that, actually. So it was really interesting. But, mm. but, but, but you see, the thing, that, um, the thing that Tom raised that I think is most interesting is that they compete in these two-year age bands. And so, in theory, you're going to have a guy competing in someone who's 23 months older than he is. Mm. Now, at 16, that's a big difference. That's 12 and a half, 13% of your life. Mm. <laughs> and the, the strength differences that emerge between those ages is quite profound. And Tom's contention, and I think this is interesting, is um, restricted gears have been a leveler in my view because with two-year age bands, it evens out physical differences in kids who are developing at different rates. I'd hate to see restrictions lifted for younger kids where you can have children who look very young racing against kids of a similar age but who look like men and who mm. can then push a 53-11, you know? So, so where this does start to become relevant is in a race situation, downhill, where some kids are strong enough to push a 53-11 and others are not, and now gaps suddenly start to open up. Did you see the race earlier yeah. this year where um, Victor Kampenitz rode a 60 on the front? Yes, on the I think it was like, well, 58 or something mm. in, a, in a race, and he dropped everyone on the descent. And then they spoke to Pidcock at the finish line, and he's like, what the hell? And they told him he had a 58. And he, oh, that's why. Because yeah. <laughs> he dropped pros riding a chain ring bigger than they mm. were. Mm. So yeah. anyway, I, so, so th from that perspective, I think Tom's onto something maybe quite important to monitor, is you don't want to give kids a mechanical advantage that looks like a physiological advantage. Yeah, I suppose there is some logic behind all that. Yeah, yeah. but yeah. I don't think that that's enough to because the reality is like that you you can't buy these parts. Well, that's the, that's why that, they changed it. That's why it. it's been largely welcomed actually yeah. because yeah. the actual trying to get bikes with all their eleven speed, twelve speed stuff out now to get a fourteen mm. tooth cassette is almost impossible. Yeah, exactly. And I would I would say that for a young rider who's developing. Developing at high cadence is probably going to be beneficial for him, yeah. performance-wise, later in life. And so, sure, if you're going to now be going down 3 4% grades and you can push a 53.11 at 90 RPM, you're going to hit, you're going to hit 60, 70K an hour down a four, 3 4% grade, the kid, who, the kid who's not strong enough to push that is going to be struggling to stay on your wheel. Yeah, that makes sense. Where before he wasn't, but... I think they just have to, you just, you, you see, you need good coaching to overcome that. And that's really the only thing. In the same way that bad coaching creates as a problem, no matter what the gear ratio is. And I would encourage coaches to, you know, you very rarely will need a 5311 in a 16-year-old, 17-year-old kid. Yes. I mean, unless you really are spinning down a super mm. steep, <laughs> super mm. steep descent. But so there, there is. I mean, there, there, maybe I suppose <coughs> in a conservative world, ten years ago, when people were trying to look after the health and welfare of children, there was mm. there was that concern that bigger gears would harm them in some way. Yeah, and maybe a combination of all those factors we've discussed. And if given a choice between riding at eighty RPM in a fifty three eleven and at ninety five RPM in a fifty two fourteen. I know I'm going for the latter. Yes. You know, I'm going the same speed, I'm producing the same watts, but I'm riding at a higher cadence and therefore lower torque. So I'm going to, mm. A, learn a little bit more skill on the pedal stroke, acquire that through my training, and mm. I'm going to save the loading on the joints. And so, for sure, I think that's important. And it would be a pity to see races decided by mechanical strength as opposed to gearing in kids. Yeah. That's the only downside. Yeah. So, I mean, I haven't resolved Tom's question other than to, to try and encourage 
you know, if if you if the requirement is three hundred and twenty watts, try and get it at high cadence. <laughs> yeah. 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 But see, fifty three eleven allows you to get it at low cadence. Well, hopefully, a lot of those youngsters that are riding, are watching the Tour de France, and watching the pros ride, and realizing that high cadence is the 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 default for many of the professional riders, and they should aspire to that, which they often do when you're thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. You want to ride like a pro. Mm. You don't want to push massive gears. Yeah. Yeah. So yes. Anyway, we have discussed cadence in the past. It's always an interesting subject and not always easy. It's often very much about what suits you. So our final um, topic today comes from Dr. Joseph Galitzin. Um, and this is a very interesting one because Ross and I have discussed this a little bit before the podcast today. And it's the story that he saw and he caught, he says it caught his eye. It's around um, Guillaume Martin and Thibaut Pinot talking about Rafa Nadal's um, admission during the French Open that mm. he took a lot of painkillers in his left foot, I think it was, to get through the tournament. Yeah. Uh, in cycling, most cycling, and I think it still applies, there is a no-needle rule. In other words, you can't inject anything, cyclists. Yeah. The interesting thing is that Thibaut Pino, obviously talking about the fact that in cycling, if you're he's got back problems, he said if he'd been able to inject himself with cortisone every five seconds, he would have he would have wouldn't have missed the two years that he did through back problems. Guy Martin, very interestingly, has got a degree in philosophy, mm. so he comes at it from a different perspective. He comes at it from an ethical perspective yeah. by saying mm. that it is about. Um, not you know he, he doesn't want to participate if he's basically pumping himself full of drugs just to get there. It, it's yeah. I mean, I don't know where I stand with it, Ro- Ross. What are your what are your thoughts? It's, yeah, well, it's a very interesting question. Well, it, it's such a it's such a good question, and it's actually a topic for a podcast of its own. Absolutely, and I know exactly who the ethicist is that I'll get on. You wrote is there a, such a thing as an ethicist? Yeah, sports ethics is even a field. And in fact, when we when we at World Rugby when we did the transgender guideline, we reached out to. A, the guy who was the head of sports ethics in England. That's the only way I identified him. I didn't know who he was. Wow. Turns out that in the past, he'd worked on TUEs, therapeutic use exemptions in sports. Which happens and a lot in cycling for those that... Uh, <laughs> all sports. Well, like, I suppose also, it's another way, it's the certificate you get from your doctor to exempt you from, in other words, to say you can use this in competition because yeah, you need not, it. Not from your doctor, from WADA's panel. From WADA's player. So in other words... Uh, I've got this condition. Asthma is the most common one for which yeah. TUs are granted, and therefore I need permission to use a drug that would otherwise get me banned. Yes. And they say, yeah, we agree, you've got asthma. The problem is we know that athletes cheat the system. So, for instance, Salazar was alleged to make his athletes run up and down flights of stairs just before they went for the lung function test so that they'd be fatigued, underperform in the lung function test in order to get the prescription for some of the drugs. That was the allegation. But, I mean, you can buy asthma inhalers. Yes, I, don't know how much, I don't know how much performance advantage they give you. Maybe you can get them combined over the with here, other drugs. And it, interestingly, when I was in, the, in Germany recently, you can't. You needed a prescription oh. in Germany. But here in South Africa, and I don't know what it's like the rest of the world, yeah, that is you, you interesting. You just get it across the line. Yeah. 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 Uh, cortisone's the big one. I mean, you know, the Wiggins and Froome scandals with mm. cortisone. Uh, well, Wiggins, Froome with salbutamol. Um, Kenacort was the drug in that specific instance. Remember the Jiffy Bag story. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so the question is TUEs. And Joseph comes at this from the perspective of a doctor. And he says, as a physician, I struggle with the notion that an elite athlete should not be able to receive treatment for an acquired or congenital condition. He goes on to say, if the particular drug could be delivered orally, would it be any different? I understand that cycling has a history of using needles for nefarious purposes. Anti-doping is imperative, but placing people and athletes of people in a category of unable to receive treatment because of the system, uh, because of the system of delivery seems ridiculous. 
there was a time like a few years ago, I reckon that I probably would have gone in a disagreement with this. Mm-hmm. My position was like quite dogmatic with the TUE shouldn't even be allowed. Like you shouldn't give a TUE for the use of a cortisone drug because someone's got an allergy to pollen and can't breathe midway through the Tour de France or before a big marathon or whatever it is. And then I remember I was at a conference in Monaco, the IOC medical conference. I think it was in 2017. And the medical director of WADA was talking to me over drinks. And he said, I've got a bone to pick with you. I saw something that you'd written about this. And I, I just got to explain to you the perspective from a doctor. Mm-hmm. He says, that athlete's going to run anyway. He's going to wake up that morning with like a tight chest and he needs something. for. He's going to go and run. And if I don't give him some drug, he's going to hurt himself by training, mm-hmm. by competing. So therefore, it's actually, as a doctor, my duty of care to the athlete is to prescribe the medicine. And that's why we have to have TUEs. And I said, okay, I, I get that, actually. That's not an unreasonable argument to make. Yeah, okay. The athlete's going to go out with, and you can now you can argue, and this comes up actually in the Tour de France, an athlete gets bronchitis 12 days into the 21-day tour. What do you do as a doctor? He's going he's gonna to get on the bike. Like you can <laughs> try as you might to persuade him not to, but if he's got a shot at a podium or a stage win or a jersey win or whatever, he's going to go for it. Now, okay, the doctor's going to say, well, in that case, I'm going to try and alleviate with... Now, in that situation, he hasn't survived the physical test of the race without getting sick. Yeah, I would dispute the TUE then. You know what I mean? Because yeah. part, of, part of being an elite athlete is staying healthy. Mm-hmm. So I would I would argue against it, but for a congenital condition, then it starts to become different because the athlete's not, or does it? <laughs> can you tell I don't know? Can you tell I don't know? But I can see both perspectives here. Yes. You could argue that an elite athlete shouldn't have a congenital condition that inhibits their performance because now you're basically propping them up with medicines to keep them elite, where if they didn't have the medicine, they wouldn't be elite. Yes. That's the argument. Because it sounds like Nadal would not have got through the French Open if it hadn't It does. Been. I mean, the, yeah. apparently he was interviewed and they said, how many injections? He says, better you don't know. Mm. It's like, But then again, he said his foot was numb. He couldn't feel a thing. Yeah. 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 So he wouldn't have got through. Yeah. You know, and, and actually I thought of Joseph again last week in the context of Nadal because he pulled out of this Wimbledon semi mm-hmm. with an ab- abstract. I guarantee you they were trying painkillers and injections then. Mm-hmm. You know, at some point, an ab muscle injury, you just, the body says no thanks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can't override it and you just can't function mm. at some point. But they would have definitely explored it. I guarantee you that before a rugby test match, there are players using pa- prescription painkillers mm. to prevent what's about to happen, pain, <laughs> or to treat the pain that they're still carrying from the week before's match. Mm. Is that Good or I mean, obviously it's not mm. good. That's a stupid word. You see, to the thing is, you can also sh- extrapolate it right down to the average uh, person participating in a marathon or uh, yeah, yeah, here in South exactly. Africa, the comrades, which is an no. ultra distance. Where were they? Mm. There are people who run those races taking pain medication right. the whole way. No, I and think, that, and that becomes a thing. And I, I fundamentally disagree with that. I, I agree with Guy Martin in this case, in that he doesn't want to participate if his body's not allowing him to do that or he yes. needs drugs to get through that process. And I agree with him as well. And in fact, I, I think in fairness to Joseph's here, his question, he I don't think he would advocate that either. He's saying, I think, he had congenital conditions. So I took us away well, from that. How do we this. define a congenital condition just for well, explanation purposes? Well, this is – this is a, so he, he talks about – it's unreasonable. He, he struggles with the notion that they should not be able to receive treatment for an acquired or congenital condition. 
So congenital, something inherent to the athlete, something they have, not as a result of doing the sport. And I don't know, maybe, Joseph, you let us know when you listen to this. If an athlete gets sick as a consequence of training or if they are run down and they need some sort of hormone, I mean, would you, would you advocate hormone replacement because of overtraining? No, probably, probably not. Mm. That's the Guillaume-Martin argument as mm. well. Right? And I think Pino is the same, is no, don't don't use medicines to prop up what the training has taken out mm-hmm. of you and because you haven't adapted and so actually now right. your performance is a is an outcome of your medicalization mm-hmm. you know pino and joseph talks about pino did not treat a back injury properly for a number of seasons because it required a needle and steroid injection personally i don't think the french position is laudable and for that matter in cert- certain circumstances ethical so so maybe Joseph would allow for certain acquired sports-related injuries to be treated, and and I would say out of competition, it's okay. But in the case to, of Nadal, which is the you, example that he uses, and this is where I think there is yeah. less of a grey line, is that Nadal was actually too injured theoretically to participate in the <laughs> right. French Open, but he, he won it. <laughs> yes, and it wasn't. There's no. There's not nothing congenital about that. It, that that injury. Well, the condition that the the, the, the the it's called malovice or something. The foot the foot oh, injury supposedly is okay. congenital, right? Right. Okay. But it in does. Other words, he was born with this particular. Born with this that's, condition. That's the argument on the other side. But I, I absolutely hear your argument. Is that is that had it not been for drugs, you wouldn't have made it through that tournament, let alone won it. Yes. Um, so therefore, have we, you know, and, and the wording in the in the wider documents around TUEs is quite, it's interesting, it's changed. In the very beginning, the wording used to be no competitive advantage. It's now sort of morphed to, in all probability, only returns the athlete to the level they would have been at. <laughs> so it's quite soft now. It's probability, it's probabilistic, mm. it's the level they would have been at. So you could argue that Nadal would have been at that level if he hadn't had that condition. Well, but he did. <laughs> yeah. You know, Pino would have been riding for two years if he hadn't had back problems, mm. but he but he did. He did and, yeah. and he's not allowed. So there's certainly a discrepancy from one sport to the next. Yeah. Anyway, I think... I quite like the cycling philosophy though because the no-needle strategy um, is that if you're in a competitive cycle, you, 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 it's, there's the no-needle philosophy kind of works. Mm. Um, because you shouldn't be holding yourself together. If he decides to take the season off or the year off and go through the right treatment, I suppose he can still do that, can he? Yeah, I wouldn't. I mean, if Thibaut Pina decides, okay, I'm going to take a year off, you, get the injections, get all the bits and pieces I need to get done to fix me, he can still do that and then declare I'm not participating because I'm Yeah, you can, you can do it out of competition. Yeah. And that's why that's why it's still because people have said it's just ban it all the time. But then no, then the problem is you deny that's exactly the point Joseph treatment. makes is you deny treatment. And right. it sounds as though Pino has been denied treatment. I don't know yes. whether he he imposed that stringent limitation on himself or whether it was mm. it was the authorities that did. But I but but you can understand you can see where Joseph's coming from, right? Is that is that why should you be denied medical treatment because you're an athlete? But you can also see the counter argument, and I'm kind of leaning more towards that counter argument for most sports, is that if medical treatment's the thing that's keeping you going, then it should be denied to you because part of being an elite athlete is to not need it. <laughs> um, the, the, there's so many other interesting examples. For instance, what if you've got attention deficit disorder, which is a real thing. I think yeah. it's overdiagnosed, but you've got it. The drugs used to treat that are illegal. So you get the TUE to treat a legitimate medical condition 
And as a secondary consequence, you get a performance benefit from a banned substance. Now, how do you, what do you make of that? Well, you, you know, like that's not even a, that's not even a, a physical performance related um, affliction or syndrome condition. Yes. It's something completely separate, but it gives you access to a drug that elevates performance probably mm. over and above what you'd have had if you didn't have it. Yeah. And, and taking the drug has nothing to do with sports performance. Yeah. It's interesting. So Guy Martin, is a, there's a quote in the piece that was appeared in Road.cc where Guy Martin, he, he really does, you can see he's studied philosophy. He says, um, he talks specifically about uh, Nadal and uh, Zetan Ibrahimovic um, talking about having injections as well. He says, they pass for heroes because they go far in pain, but in fact, they use substances to go far in pain. Mm. And again, it's very borderline. So he's suggesting that, wow, these guys are tough. Well, they're actually not that tough because they're taking medication. And then he says, in terms of cycling, the winner on the bike, and particularly that of the Tour de France, even if there is no element behind it, he is systematically accused of doping. So he, there's a little bit of bitterness there because they're saying mm. in cycling, we are so restricted in terms of what we can do. But here's Nadal and soccer players using this stuff like, you know, at, randomly, and they get promoted as heroes and cyclists get vilified as dopers. Yeah, yeah. And you can understand why. Yeah. So, so there's, there's definitely double standards. And I, yeah. again, Joseph makes that point in his message, and I agree with him entirely. You know, um, it's it's just a it's it's just a really interesting area because you, you what what about like classic eye surgery to improve your vision? Yes. Um, to what extent can you change? Yeah, baseball yeah. pitchers have elbow surgery so that they can pitch faster. Mm. There was so, also the story, and I don't know whether we ever confirmed this, about Nino Schurter, who had apparently uh, bored out his nasal passages really? <laughs> surgically to allow more air to go in there. And I and I have yet to confirm whether the story was true, but um, that was there was a story about that. Wow! Now that is a that is he's trying to help himself by changing his physical. Mm ability i guess to yeah. some extent whether that story is true or not yeah. but again it's in that same realm of to what extent can you assist your own ability hmm. should you just be naturally the way you were born yeah i mean i'm yeah. think i think again of rugby you know the sport i'm involved in now is like at half time in a world cup final if a guy's got like a wrecked shoulder like i guarantee you they're taking something at half time so they can they keep, shouldn't be keep back on the, the field, field. Yeah. i agree and so almost then in that situation okay so then let's let's ask it this way is what if it was a concussion? Yes. What if he's What if he's taken a knock to the head and at halftime the doctor recognizes it and says, actually, you know what, I'm going to send you back on there because it's a World Cup final. That's negligent medical care. Mm-hmm. It's a disaster. I mean, that's that's a <laughs> death waiting to happen. Now, shoulders, maybe not a death waiting to happen, but it's a bad injury. I remember hearing could, a talk it by end, the, It could end that player's career. Well, his life. By shoving just some cortisone in the shoulder because... Or his, or right, his, right. Yeah. In, the, in the instance no, of brain about, injury. But even but, but, in the but even in the shoulder. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So then you've got to say, okay, the ball's got to be in the, in the doctor's um, mm. court just to say, like, am I doing harm by treating? Mm. So the one way to look at this is to say, what if TUEs didn't exist? A whole bunch of athletes would go out in pain or they'd quit the sport. And some would say, well, actually, it's better they quit the sport because it's it's safer for them to quit than to continue with medical support, right? That's the yeah. medical ethical argument against TUEs. <laughs> but at the same time, sometimes the athlete would go out and do the sport and incur more harm without a TUE than with it. Yeah. And that's ultimately, it, it boils down to the person on the ground making that assessment at the time. 
And maybe that's mm. a very unsatisfactory conclusion to his question because I don't know if we can conclude this one. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know. Like, I one thing I do know is if you get if you I'm get sick. I'm erring more on the side of Thibaut Pinot and Guy Martin. To be I honest. think I think I am also, but I do but understand. I do understand Joseph's point. I would say definitively, if you get sick in the course of an event and you need a drug that is performance restoring, that shouldn't be allowed. Yeah. I think that that for me is like okay, put that mm. pin that one to the wall. That's a grey area in itself. For asthma, if it can be diagnosed objectively and properly, I think it's a fair to have a TUE, mm. uh, because. But again, I've seen people on social media say, you know, you're an elite you athlete. You should be filtered out exactly. by by asthma. If you've got asthma, you shouldn't necessarily be a top cyclist. Make it pure, like in other words, <laughs> exactly like. Mm. So, okay. Yeah. Having thought I was heading towards a conclusion, I've now moved it even further away from concluding, <laughs> which is all in support of this idea that we actually need an ethicist here so that we can chuck this to them and like really try and understand it. Because yeah. I don't think there's a right or a wrong answer here. I get what Joseph's saying. I got what Alan Vernack was telling me at that IOC meeting, and I understand it. But I also, I don't want to see, I don't want to see a medical experiment or a medical intervention win a title Mm. over a natural athlete, like Martin says. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Well, it is a very controversial subject. And yeah, let us know what you think about that particular issue because we're not particularly decisive on that ourselves. Uh, don't forget you can uh, interact with us on our Twitter feed, which is Sports SciPod. Of course, Ross is on uh, Insta- on, on Twitter and uh, myself. And uh, tweet us. Let us know what you think and uh, about all the subjects we talked about today. So a big thank you to Josh and to Jason and to uh, Dr. Joseph and uh, Kun van der Rie, along with uh, also jo- Julie and Tom Abbott, who all supplied questions from our patrons. They've been fascinating to discuss. It's been one of our longest podcasts we've ever done, right. but it's been absolutely fascinating to listen to Ross's insights and to hear your questions and uh, your um, tips and some of the links you've sent us as well, which have given us some insights into these very complex subjects. But for now, it's goodbye. <laughs> Follow the Science of Sport podcast at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.